everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by my friends over at a company called Real Mushrooms, realmushrooms.com. Um, Sky Chilton and his father, Jeff Chilton. I interviewed Jeff a number of episodes ago. Uh, really interesting guys. I, I really enjoyed that conversation with Jeff. Um, and it's a company that sells and distributes medicinal mushrooms in powder or capsule form. Um, I was really happy to have these guys come on. Uh, I think they were very much in alignment with the, the values of the podcast. Uh, as you all know, a big part of this podcast is uh, about uh, plant medicine, holistic medicine. And I, I think the benefits of medicinal mushrooms are, are truly fantastic. And I think there's really a growing body of work uh, that, that's really showing and alluding to all of the amazing properties that mushrooms have. Um, they sell a lot of different mushrooms, um, things you've probably heard of like reishi, chaga, lion's mane, turkey tail, cordyceps. Um, those are all mushrooms I work with. They, they're, they're part of uh, what I consider uh, for myself a, a really holistic uh, supplement regime. Um, and the, the thing I really love about their company, not only are they really good guys, I think they're really ethical guys, um, but... Um, the, the product is really amazing. It's all uh, 100% mushrooms. They're organic. Uh, and, and that's really rare. For better or for worse, the supplement in this industry is, is highly unregulated. Um, and so often when you get supplements, you don't necessarily know what you're getting. You may be getting some mushroom. You may be getting a bunch of fillers and other things. Oftentimes, even when you're buying what may be a mushroom. It may not have any of that mushroom in it at all, unfortunately. Uh, even some of the big, uh, I think even the biggest company that, that sells mushrooms, actually it's not the fruiting body, not the mushroom itself. It's the mycelial, which is grown on grain, and then those things are mixed up and then sold in a supplement form. So not only are you not getting the mushroom itself, you're getting the mycelium uh, mixed with grain. So um, it's one of the amazing things of real mushrooms is it's exactly that. It's real mushrooms. So it's 100% mushrooms, organic. So you know you're getting a really good uh, product. You're getting the actual fruiting body, the, the mushroom itself, 100% of that. Um, and again, just really great guys. I'm, I'm really happy to have them on and supporting this podcast. Uh, so if you'd like a really good product, uh, you'd like to start working with medicinal mushrooms, um, check out their site, realmushrooms.com. Um, and also listeners of the show. Uh, if you go to their site, realmushrooms.com forward slash universe, you get 25% off your first order, uh, which is a really good deal. And I think once you uh, uh, start working and, and tasting their products, you'll you'll really uh, see and feel a big difference. So uh, thank you to them. And uh, I think that's it. And without further ado, here is the intro to the show. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. On this episode, I sat down with my friends Brian James and Adam Aronovich. Um, I met both of them uh, quite a long time ago. We were all working at a plant medicine center in the Peruvian Amazon, uh, predominantly working with ayahuasca and a group of people called the Shipibo people. Um, I've interviewed both of them before, so if you're interested in those conversations or learning more about them as an individual, you can go back and listen to those episodes. Uh, but I thought it would be 
a really good idea to have them both on. Uh, I was following a bit uh, some of their work and uh, uh, some of their views on plant medicine and uh, kind of the the emerging culture that's arising from that. Um, and I thought they'd be really good to talk about some of these topics uh, about plant medicine um, and and kind of about these ideas that we really talked about a lot about these ideas of polarity of of kind of pendulums of going to extremes. Um, and some of the issues that arise with plant medicine uh, that, that we all, I, I think, recognize and, and see some of the the harm and the the, the potential disconnect, uh, or uh, we use the term amputation, um, especially with these ideas of the the kind of psychological model that's uh, really moving into the world of plant medicine and and also really at the world at large uh, maybe the overemphasis on things like trauma and childhood trauma and how that creates certain limited uh, worldviews and narratives um, and, and kind of just a, a Western model of psychology and how that's being imposed uh, and and really then only allowing plant medicines to be used in a certain way and. and kind of going back to that word of amputation, really cutting off uh, and, and not seeing plant medicines in a more holistic cosmovision or worldview and, and really uh, seeing and understanding all of the, the different things that, that can go along with those. Not only the healing, uh, but the transformation, the, the, the communal aspect, uh, the religious aspects. There's, there, there's many other aspects that these plants entail. So uh, it was a really fascinating conversation. Um, I, I was super thankful both of them could come on. Uh, I think they both have uh, uh, really interesting viewpoints and, and backgrounds that allows them to, to speak from uh, a place of knowledge and authority about these subjects. So uh, I think and hope you all will really enjoy this conversation. As always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really good site. Uh, you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As, uh, to all the people who are supporting that way, to all the patrons, as always, thank you very much for your support. Uh, and if you're able to do that, thank you in advance. I really like the idea of sites like Patreon, which really work on this idea of reciprocity. So if you feel like you're gaining something from this podcast, uh, that's an amazing way uh, to help the podcast and to help me to continue to bring on these guests. Um, if you're not able to do that, uh, helping with the algorithms is always uh, really helpful. So if you're viewing this on YouTube, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, leaving any questions or comments in the comment section. Uh, also with the video versions now, they're on Rumble and Spotify as well. Um, and then if you're listening to this, the audio version, uh, especially with Apple Podcasts, uh, following or subscribing to the show and leaving a starred rating and a short review, that's also a really big help. Um, also with Spotify, now you have the ability to rate the show. Uh, so I think that's it. Uh, without further ado, here is my conversation with Adam and Brian.
official. Now we're live. Yeah, sorry. Go, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking leading up to this, um, when I was growing up in the 80s, all the men in my family worked in auto factories. And at a certain point, they created something called NAFTA, which is the North American Free Trade Alliance between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. And I was thinking how, you know, I'm in Canada, <laughs> Adam's in Mexico. Jason, I don't know, are you in the States now? I'm in Peru, but uh, I'm, I'm from the States, yeah. Okay, so you're from the States. Uh, and so this is kind of like a, a NAFTA agreement <laughs> in a way, and maybe it allows for the free flow of ideas between our different regions. Because um, I think we all have kind of different backgrounds and perspectives on this stuff, but uh, there's a lot of commonality that um, I think we all share, yeah. Great. Yeah, you guys still have long hair. I used to have long hair, but I've... Uh... <laughs> Well, Although, there, Adam, there, your hair's gotten shorter too. Yeah, I mean, right now it's a little bit longer than I would like to. I need to go back to the to the haircut. But you know, there's an argument to be made, which I think many people have made here in Mexico. The NAFTA wasn't precisely to our, in our best interest. Yeah, like it was uh, like exploitation of Mexican labor to lower costs of American produce. But you know, let's. <laughs> well, yeah, and and we lost a lot of our auto factory jobs, uh, right. which directly affected my family. So. Yeah, it wasn't great for us either. Right. If you make a deal with the U.S., it's probably going to be good for the U.S. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's all you can learn from history. <laughs> well, cool. Um, so I've actually interviewed both of you on the podcast. So if anyone is interested in in, in learning more about you, uh, they can they can go back to those episodes. But but maybe just really briefly, if, if you can introduce yourselves and and just maybe say a little bit about you and and what got you into the work that you're doing now. Maybe Adam, we we can start with you and and then go to Brian. Well, my name is Adam, and uh, I'm in Mexico at the moment, and I'm. A doctoral candidate in medical anthropology and communications, a facilitator, and have been for, for a few years in all sorts of different capacities. And at the moment, I'm also managing a meme page. Well, it's not only a meme page, it's memes, but also some commentary about what's called Healing from Healing. It's kind of like a mm, critical and skeptical gaze a transformation and healing culture through humor making fun of all the different things that constitute what healing culture is like uh, nowadays you can check it out if you're interested and give it a like and um, I mean I guess I got into this work from all sorts of different directions but mostly through my own personal experiences with psychedelics when I was in my early 20s and immediately realizing that these are not uh, trivial things, but actually things that hold a huge potential for individual, but also collective cultural transformation. I mean, those things remain true for me, even though I do make fun of the culture that has grown around it. And then the second thing is just through my work in mental health. Uh, I come, my background is in psychology and all sorts of different ways. I worked in psychiatric hospitals and at some point uh, I got very disenchanted. It's kind of a very short version. I got very disenchanted with what I saw was an offer for people who were really suffering, uh, psychic suffering, emotional suffering, mental suffering. The options that were available to them through kind of like the main mental health institutions, psychiatric institutions were less than satisfactory in any, you know, in every mean of what that means. And then I wanted to figure out 
what other options were available, not necessarily through hegemonic, Western, academic, psychology, and psychiatry, but perhaps through other cultures and how other cultures deal with uh, sadness, anxiety, emotional distress, existential issues, and so on and so forth. And that, you know, led me to start traveling the world and spending time with indigenous communities and getting really deep into uh, those questions. And then I spent uh, four and a half years, almost five years in Peru. That's where I met both of you, Jason and Brian, uh, sharing that space, doing that kind of work and uh, getting to know the Amazonian medical system more intimately. Yeah, great. Yeah. Um, well, <clears throat> I guess where I'm at now is I've been working for the past 10 years first as a yoga teacher, and then through teaching yoga one-on-one -on -one with people, they started to bring me their kind of personal issues. <clears throat> you know, as they engaged in this practice, it started to bring a lot of stuff up for people. And often those one-on-one -on -one yoga sessions would turn into counseling sessions. And I wasn't qualified to really handle that. I mean, I'd had my own experiences and insights about this kind of thing. Uh, but I really wanted to be responsible in the way I supported people and I wanted to offer that support to them. So I started to do training in different psychotherapeutic methods, trying to find something that aligned with, uh, my worldview, my approach to yoga and things like that. And so I've explored a lot over that past 10 years and it's, uh, constantly evolving, but, um, I guess it led to more of a focus on depth and archetypal psychology. Uh, but before that, I mean, what got me into that was uh, really my own suffering. You know, I had a pretty standard midlife crisis around the age of 35. And I had uh, been working in advertising as a graphic designer for many years, had a very successful career. But uh, as I kind of climbed the corporate ladder and achieved more success, I grew more miserable. Uh, I was having panic attacks, uh, waking up with night sweats. I was drinking a lot to uh, try to help with that, um, kind of recreationally using drugs. And so I went to see my first therapist. And thankfully, he was uh, a depth psychologist and we worked with dreams. That was really amazing. He recommended that uh, I revisit psychedelics, something that I had experimented with in my teenage years back in the early 90s. And so I did my first solo mushroom trip with a more of a therapeutic focus. And it was great. It connected me back to my creativity, the kind of uh, childlike curiosity and wonder and joy that I had lost in the pursuit of a conventional career. And after I gave him a good report on that, he invited me to my first ayahuasca ceremony in the Central Daimi Church uh, outside of Toronto. And I write about that in my book, Yoga and Plant Medicine. Uh, it was a terrifying and uh, revelatory experience. And that started me on the plant medicine path, and which led me eventually to Peru. I was interested in teaching yoga in ayahuasca center and seeing if some of the parallels I'd seen between the yogic path and the plant medicine path um, 
some of those parallels that I'd uh, started to see to really kind of test them out in the field to see if yoga was such a good way to prepare for and integrate the plant medicine experience as it had been for me. Uh, and it was amazing. It was an incredible time to be in that uh, intense experience to offer people yoga before their ceremonies, to come back together with them afterwards, to bring in some of the music that I'd uh, learned along the way. Um, yeah, so that led to the writing of the book Yoga and Plant Medicine, really putting some of those ideas together. Um, yeah, so that's a little bit. I mean, it's a long, complicated story. But I think one thing I wanted to just kind of highlight here at the beginning of our conversation, because um, I've written these articles critiquing uh, the medicalization of psychedelics and what I have called uh, the growth of traumadelic culture, uh, I wanted to point out that the reason why I got involved with plant medicines in the first place was due to my own trauma. So I, you know, trauma is a thing and I've suffered from it and I know how plant medicines can help. Uh, but I do have some critiques over the way things have gone in the past, uh, probably 10 years or so since I've gotten involved with it. So just, just to say that at the outset, that, uh, I'm not saying that uh, trauma isn't a real thing and doesn't affect people and that plant medicine can't help with that. Just the opposite. I just uh, have some issues with the way things are going. Yeah, <clears throat> that, that's a really good segue because um, I, I think the the main theme of, of this conversation is really beginning to explore uh, what's been described as, as kind of the, the, the cycle of psychologization i don't know if the, what the word psychologizing of of plant medicine and and i think like you said that that's a really important aspect is is, is that is a fundamental part of plant medicine um but a, a, as i was uh, kind of speaking about earlier i, I just did a, a conversation with with a guy you both know his name is Jeronimo Maserasa, and one of the things he was speaking about and and he had a really good quote which he said if because very much this work is moving towards this psychologized model, psychedelic assisted therapy. And, and he said really beautifully that if that's all we acknowledge that these plants are good for, then that's all they will be good for. Uh, and he kind of described it as the amputation, the, the, the cutting off of, of a part of a limb, like, you know, maybe even yogic theory, like Ashtanga's, the, the art of eight limbs. And in a way, you're just taking one of those limbs and then focusing on it. I think one of the interesting things is that we we all have different backgrounds, but we all met at, at a, a big ayahuasca center, which th there was a lot of contrast there because <clears throat> it was a Western run center, but it was working with indigenous people, a group of people called the Shipibo people. Um, so on the one hand, there there was a lot of respect for kind of the, the traditional way of working with these plants. Uh, but then there, there was also very much an emphasis on these more new or modern ways, which were focused on the psychologizing of, of, of this plant work, very much focusing on things like childhood trauma, uh, very individualized models that, that everything is seen through the lens of, of suffering or trauma. Um, 
And that was always something that, that I had an issue with because f for me, these plants are much more than that. And, and that, is, that is a part of that, like you said, Brian, it's, uh, and, and it's an integral part. But in this indigenous way of working, it's, it's a part. And, and there's many more things that are going on uh, uh, why these plants would be worked with. So maybe to start... You can each describe a bit of your journey of, of like what what attracted you because we're also in an interesting place like we are Western people, uh, but we also ended up working in the Peruvian Amazon, uh, which uh, you know I would imagine for both of you there there was a desire to work in a more traditional sense like you didn't end up in a in a Western clinic working with the synthesized versions of these like you actually went to the source to to the Amazon jungle to to an indigenous group of people who have this knowledge knowledge, this wisdom. Um, but then at the same time, and, and it's a reason I, I wanted to bring both of you on is, you know, even though I think all of us have possibly quite different views on things, uh, there's a lot of commonality. And one of the commonality was actually kind of taking a stand and saying, hey, wait, like, I don't necessarily agree with all of these narratives that are being put forth, which are just being assumed to be fact, uh, when in reality, they were often quite different from the indigenous people and how they would work with medicine. And mm -hmm. so it was a, a very kind of Western mindset that was being kind of uh, inserted and then everything was looked at through that worldview. So I wonder if you can both talk a bit about what drew you to that more traditional or indigenous way of working with plant medicine. Um, and then also maybe some of the issues that you, you began to see uh, that was coming up with kind of the, 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 the blending or the, the, the molding of these two different worlds coming together and, and, and what were some of the things that, that came up for you? Yeah. Adam, let me go first, because I'll bring in a term, and I know you, you love new terminology. <clears throat> and, uh, okay, so I, I spoke with someone yesterday, he's a friend from up here in Canada, and he's done a lot of work with the indigenous people up here. And uh, he pointed me to an academic article that came out about uh, maybe 10 years ago. And something I've been talking about um, is how I see this as a maybe not so subtle form of colonization is the imposition of Western psychiatry and psychology on indigenous systems of healing. Uh, so I've been kind of writing about that and speaking about that. And in this academic article, uh, the title of it is the four waves of colonization. He identifies the fourth wave as, as exactly this. Uh, the imposition of Western healing ideologies on indigenous people. Uh, and the term that he came up with is psycholonization. So I know Adam's going to love that one. I thought, <laughs> I think it's a great term. Um, okay, so that's, that's one thing. So why was I interested in kind of uh, going to the source, as you put it? Well, that's always been my interest um, when I started studying yoga seriously, I was really interested in getting as close as I could to the source, just because I knew from my reading of scriptures that uh, how yoga was interpreted and presented in the West was, uh, well, very distorted, uh, 
diluted in a lot of ways. Like you said, a lot of the limbs had been cut off um, and, you know, focus on kind of what worked for Americans and particularly in a consumerist context, you know, what sells. Uh, so that was my approach with the yoga. And so with the, the plant medicine, once I kind of got into it more seriously, um, starting with the Santo Daimi church. And so in the Santo Daimi, for me, it was like really learning the songs in Portuguese so that I could uh, full, more fully participate in the ceremonies, um, reading about the history of the Santo Daimi. Uh, and then at a certain point, I got kind of disillusioned with the Daimi. There was like a heavy uh, kind of Christian uh, dogma present there that started to rub me the wrong way. And I got tired of um, being asked to sit in a chair with the lights on while drinking medicine. And I just wanted to sit on the ground and I wanted to drink it in a more natural setting. So I thought, well, let me see if I can get to the Amazon. And uh, I was actually teaching yoga over in Vancouver, doing a workshop. And the integration director of the center that we worked at came to the workshop. And I told her that I wanted to try uh, working at a center in the Amazon so that I could experience the more traditional ceremony and um, kind of test out some of my ideas about yoga and plant medicine. And so that's how I got that gig where we all met. Uh, so that's what brought me there. And, you know, I started to see the problems right away. It was just the imposition of certain frameworks um, kind of dogmatic language around ayahuasca, you know, things like ayahuasca is the, the grandmother or the mother, uh, which wasn't my experience. And Adam and I talked about this in a podcast we did recently. Um, you know, for me, the understanding from the central daimi, and then what I found out from a lot of the indigenous traditions down in the Amazon was that the ayahuasca is, a kind of a, a, a marriage of the opposites in a way of the masculine and feminine principles of, uh, in the central daimi, it's called the, the force and the light, a very kind of classic, uh, union of the opposite stuff, you know? And for me, that was like, well, there's yoga right there. It's in the plant, you know, the plant is a kind of a yoga, a union of opposites and, you know, even in a Jungian sense, uh, that's a big theme in Jungian psychology. Yeah. Uh, so that's not what I was hearing, though, from the Western facilitators. And I saw how that affected people's experience. And I felt that it really limited their experience to um, personal individualist uh, psychology and the hero's journey, my healing journey, my growth, all of this stuff, totally disconnected from their environment, from their lineage, from their ancestry. Um, yeah. So some of the issues, I mean, I've written about this quite a bit now. I've got three articles and I, I think I've, uh, I've said everything I have to say for now on it, but so there's a lot, you know, but that's a little bit of it. Yeah. Do you, do you all think even that, that terminology of, of like mother ayahuasca or the medicine comes from a more Western point of view? But, because it is a, a yes. in a way a feminization of a medicine which you know you mentioned young in an archetypal sense that is like 
the feminine, the emotional aspect, the, the psychologizing of something, rather than this idea of a duality, and and, well, and kind of the forgetting of the idea of the masculine, which is very important, which is in an archetypal way, it's not about the emotion; it's it's more about the action or the stability or the, you know, which is a very fundamental part of any healing journey. Is not just the internal journey, but there's also the actualizing of it, the the putting something into action, not not necessarily sitting around and talking about it, but doing something. Yeah, well, you know, from a kind of archetypal psychological perspective, I see it as a an expression of the mother complex in the West, which um, the cult of trauma has really grown out of or fostered. Uh, so, you know, one of my critiques about um, trauma therapy is that it constellates the inner child and focuses so much on the wounded inner child that in a way the person then takes on the qualities of the inner child. So helplessness, uh, victimhood, uh, the deep politicization of the individual, uh, self-centeredness, you know, all of these things that are qualities of the child become constellated in the individual when there's a focus only on childhood trauma. So of course, the wounded child is gonna be looking for a loving, comforting, protecting mother. Um, and so, you know, for me, it was immediately apparent, like, why so much focus on ayahuasca as this mother figure? Well, because there's such a focus on the childhood trauma and the infantilizing effect that has on the person uh, who's kind of bought into that. Uh, so it goes hand in hand, and it's just kind of a no-brainer for me, you know, to understand why that might be, why there's such a focus on the loving mother. Yeah. Over to you, Adam. Do you want to take it up? Yeah, I mean, I think, they're, they're, you know, like the, the way that I perceive this feminization of ayahuasca also has to do just with a conceptual background from which modern plant medicine uses kind of like grew out of. You know, we have the counterculture of the 60s and 70s, a certain cultural move towards Eastern traditions and you know, very shallow, cherry-picked interpretation of Vedic ideas or Eastern concepts and so forth. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like become almost a cliche already, you know, kind of this like pseudo-tantric or California-tantric separation of feminine and masculine qualities, right? Like the feminine is all about emotion and feeling and softness and motherly qualities, and the masculine is all about rational thought and, you know, math and strength and power as opposed to softness and, you know, kind of like this very, you know, shallow separation, I guess. And, you know, like that seeped through the culture quite a lot. And I think also because of the cultural momentum and the political momentum of the last few decades, whereas a lot of the critique coming from, from the left, which oftentimes overlapped, I mean, not anymore, but, you know, used to overlap to some extent with kind of like this rising new age, non-religious spirituality, uh, and a huge move towards uh, counteracting what was perceived to be the patriarchy or the out-of-balance masculine, which now now I think we're seeing an, an overcorrection of, right? Like I think like we can all agree that there's, you know, in many, in many of these things, now we're seeing the pendulum swing too far and now an overcorrection of these things and now they need to actually bring that back into center and finding actually what is the notion of masculinity that we don't want to throw the baby with the bathwater 
I mean, you know, like a lot of the feminization of plant medicine, I think, stems from, at least in part, kind of like this idea, right, that we want to bring more feminine qualities into a society or a culture that is seen as overly taken by masculine feature or controlled by patriarchal uh, ways of being and so on and so forth. So it kind of like makes sense, right? Like all the all-loving mother, the caring mother, the you know, the, the the mother that envelops us and gives us all of this, you know, compassion and so on and so forth as an op in opposition to, you know, kind of like what is perceived to be a struct, like the structures of society that are making us see it in the first place because of our overemphasis on control, of our overemphasis in rational, our overemphasis in all sorts of different things that are perceived to be masculine qualities in a very reductive way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, just to point out too that the if we're going to work with those dualities of the, you know, the divine masculine, the, the divine feminine, we can't forget that they have their shadow aspects as well. So yeah. in this, um, in this kind of uh, push toward bringing forward more of the divine feminine, the shadow, of course, comes along with that. And I think we've seen that in the culture quite a bit. So some of the shadow aspects of the kind of the great mother archetype would be uh, where uh, nurturing and protection turns into like a smothering, um, even going so far as the devouring mother archetype from mythology. Uh, and I think we're seeing that in the, mm, the, uh, the focus on creating safety, safety in psychedelic ceremonies, right. safety in culture, um, and the kind of, uh, looking toward authorities and governments to enforce that safety. So that to me is where, yes, I think the pendulum has swung too far. And of course, what then happens, it's like a psychological rule, uh, what Jung called enantiodromia, is the constellation of the opposite. So then the opposite comes back in full force, and we're stuck swinging between these two opposites or polarities until we find some kind of, uh, you know, what he called holding the tension of the opposites. So allowing both to be consolated and um, not necessarily finding a balance, but at least having both present and working together, collaborating of the masculine and the feminine principles. It's interesting think, because... You, you know, you, you, Brian, mentioned this idea of safety, and Adam, you talked about kind of this, this pendulum. And, right. and, and that's another thing that, that I find very interesting. Um, you know, e even these ideas of safety, like, obviously, they're, they're extremely important. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as we all know, you know, one of the, I think the very good things of, of the, the center that we worked at was it was a, it was a pretty safe environment. Like, there wasn't a lot of problems in terms of safety. Like, people were, were taken care of. But it is interesting because with that idea of safety, which which does tend to to you know again, there, there's a real importance to it. But if you're looking at a more traditional or indigenous way of working, it kind of also goes back to what you're talking about, Adam. This kind of new age way of looking at things, where everything is looked through through this idea of like these plants are good and everything is rainbows and unicorns. And from a more indigenous point of view, the Amazon is all beautiful and animals are, are pretty. And I want to pet yeah. the jaguars. 
And from a, a more indigenous point of view, like there's a real reality that the, the jungle, it's magical, it's mystical, but there's also oh brujeria, there's uh, snakes that will kill you, there's uh, mal aire, there's malaria that will kill you. And and even a lot of the, the terminology they use is trying to, you know, words like dominion or dominard, it's also having a mastery over your environment, that there's real aspect of, of, of warring, of fighting, of envy, of jealousy. There seems to be a lot more reality in that worldview rather than perhaps an idealization of something, uh, you know, and, and that seems to be something where in the plant medicine world, there, there tends to be a lot more focus on these ideas of, of light, of safety, of, and, you know, even a lot of these traditional experiences with, with plant medicine were very initiatory. I mean, even ayahuasca, it's translated as vine of the dead or vine of the soul. I mean, there, there's this very heavy emphasis on going into the darkness, going into death, like coming to terms with life and death and, and all of the, the, the shit and the, the, the darkness that's around that. And it seems like a lot of that is, is maybe missing in this more kind of idealized way of, of looking at the world. My God, there's so much in here. There's, you know, like there, there's a good word that encapsulates this process of referring to is sanitation, right? There, there's, there's a, not even sanitation. There's even a better word. The, um, ah, okay. Let's let's work with sanitation at the moment. Yeah, like the sanitization. Sanitization. Okay. The the idea that we can take something and strip it of all the danger and risk and ugliness and just kind of like keep all the good bits of it. Uh, there's a there's actually Werner Herzog has this incredible bit. I think it's in one of the one of the documentaries that he did back in when he when he went to the rainforest to film <laughs> Fitzcarraldo and Fitzcarraldo, then do like a documentary yeah. in the way. And he has this way of describing the jungle. He says, you know, of course, there's a lot of mystery in the jungle. It's the same mystery that's all around us. The trees here are in mystery. The, bir the birds here are in mystery. I don't think they sing. They just screech in pain, right? And it's just, and it's kind of like, it, it said like, you know, na nature here is violent. I would say fornication and asphyxiation and choking and fighting for survival and growing and just rotting away. And he has this incredibly dark, visceral view of what the rainforest is like. But I also, like in the end, he says... Uh, it's not that I hate the jungle. I love the jungle, but I love it against my better judgment. Right? Like he has like this really real visceral understanding of what the reality of the jungle is like. And I think that's what ayahuasca gives people, right? Like this very real uncensored reality of what life is in general, but also in this particular environment where every day is a fight for survival and everything is out to get you and everything is out to eat you. And this is the environment from which these Amazonian medical systems emerge from, right? They didn't emerge in this sterile environment in a lab or, you know, in the conceptual minds of people. They emerge from the, like this really visceral environment, you know, that is a rainforest. Um, so yeah, I mean, trying to sanitize these practices, right? Like trying to hygienize these practices is um, like, you know, amputation is a good word, but stripping them from the real transformative potential, I think, which is for people to like really get a solid, visceral, first-person understanding of the precarity of life in this particular environment and like what it is like to 
experience being alive in the jungle, rainforest, and so on and so forth. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think when we're, when we're sanitizing these practices and like trying to make them as safe as possible, it's obviously a very important thing in the context of what we want to provide for people. But also in one, in, in some ways, it's also kind of like a, a reflection of the Western neurosis, right? Everything has to be under control. And if there's one thing I think that ayahuasca makes pretty clear and the rainforest as a whole makes pretty clear is actually we're not in control of pretty much anything. There's very few things that we're actually fully in control of. Right. So we are, we're trying to control the outcome of an experience, which is in its essence, in its essence, perhaps incontrollable or unpredictable and yeah, risky. I mean, there is, there are any guarantees when we go into these realms that things are going to play out the way that we expect them to be. And if we, if we uh, pretend that we're going to fully sanitize and hygienize these experiences and strip them from all of these different aspects of what it really mean, just to make them fit in this very particular view of like, oh, this is just a psychological tool that we use, minimizing risk to provide this particular experience to a Western crowd. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, amputation, I guess, is a best way of expressing what we're missing when we're not actually engaging fully with what that experience means in the fullest dimension of it. Yeah. Well, just kind of going off what you guys were talking about there, like if something like ayahuasca is meant to be initiatory, we have to understand what the function of initiation is. And traditionally initiation was uh, to demarcate um, life well got an animal running up my driveway right now sorry <laughs> well, it's like the first initiation would be to um, transform the child <clears throat> into an adult and that was done through an ordeal you know a separation from the family where you know, often the mothers would participate and as the uncles were taking the young boy away, the mothers would be wailing and crying like, don't take him away, don't take him away. And this would create a great amount of fear in the child because he wouldn't know where he was going, for how long, what was going to happen to him. Uh, So there's a lot of fear was a big part of it. And the child had to really think that he was going to be killed. Uh, And so what that does is in a way is kill off the child so that the adult can come back into the community and be a responsible contributing member of the community, not a needy child. And by homogenizing, sanitizing these rituals, we're losing that capacity for these ceremonies to be truly initiatory. And instead, we come back in the sharing circle and we want to talk about uh, repressed memories of childhood abuse and things like that. So there's the constant recentering of the inner child, uh, which is a problem because when people come back into the culture, well, they don't come back as initiated adults ready to take up the responsibility of fixing the broken cultures that uh, have led to our you know, us probably going to the medicine in the first place. So none of it works in my book. Uh, We've lost some things that um, are absolutely necessary to have healthy individuals and healthy culture. So I just see it as a big mess. And I don't believe that safety should be the first priority in these kind of matters. 
Where do you all think, because it becomes tricky because obviously we're using terms like Western or indigenous and, 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 you know, these are very loose terms, but, you know, for me, when, when we talk about something like Western, it seems we often trace it back like to the Greeks and, and certain ideals that they promoted. Um, and when we're talking about Western psychology, it's very interesting. And I think Brian, maybe you mentioned this, uh, at some point, um, which is even this word psyche is we often translate it as mind, but for the Greeks, that's not what it, it meant solely. It, it had to do with, with like a mind, body, spirit connection. It, it was often even translated as spirit or, or soul. And yet it seems like we've, we've moved to this terminology that it only means mind and therefore everything can be reduced to the mind. All of our troubles can be named and, and put in an archetype and solved through some synthesizing of some medicine. Um, but, you know, one, one thing that, that I very much noticed is, you know, even these ideas of trauma or root causes, for many of the indigenous people that I worked with, you know, again, these were recognized. They, they were recognized as real. It wasn't that they weren't real. It was named like, oh, that person has susto or that person has rateu. But that was never like the main focus. It was, oh, well, that's something that needs to be cleaned so that this person can go deeper into the medicine. I mean, even like for the Shipibo, where the, who we, we've all worked with, their word for ayahuasca is uni, which often has to do with this idea of knowledge or, or wisdom. Uh, you know, so there's this idea that even for them, that the, the trauma or the susto is is something that needs to be dealt with, but it's it's more of a minor thing. It's not the essence of of what these plants are getting towards. So. I guess the question would be, where do you think this disconnect started from? Where we're so much in the West, we're, we're focusing on the the psychological model, the, the the model of the mind, the model of healing this trauma, or the reducing of things to, to very particular boxes, with the idea that kind of if that box is then clean, then all of our problems go away, which doesn't seem to be necessarily an indigenous point of view. Yeah, well, let me take it from the maybe the psychological perspective. I mean, one of my main arguments is that um, by importing psychology into uh, psychedelic culture, it brings with it its own kind of um, misunderstandings and limitations. So psychology, for the most part, in the West, like you said, uh, has lost any focus on the soul, which is what it's supposed to be about. Um, psychiatrist in the Greek means uh, doctor of the soul, which sounds more like a shaman to me. And that was the function in Greek society. There were these uh, yatromantis, so a kind of uh, healer priest, uh, which sounds kind of like the jungle doctors that we've met, <clears throat> you know, kind of medicine healers, but also spiritual healers, Right. Uh, and so, yeah, with like kind of the Western tendency to uh, reduce things to their most material, the mind and thought forms being maybe the most subtle material aspect, that's where it's been stuck, you know, until Jung came along and opened it wide up and brought in uh, more of a soul psychology, trying to return uh, the soul to psychology. Uh, so I think, you know, 
one of the things I've been trying to advocate for is bringing a more adept psychological perspective to uh, Western psychedelic therapy, to return the soul to it, to bring in the deeper questions uh, about who am I, why am I here, what's my place in the grander scheme of things, uh, kind of broader, more complex stories, uh, the kind of stories that help one become an adult. You know, being able to tolerate a certain level of ambiguity and uncertainty. Um, so, yes, I have a critique of uh, what's been going on, but I think there's also an answer there, too. It is not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but it's bringing more depth and breadth to the kind of psychology that we uh, utilize in psychedelic therapy. Right. I think you know the one one of the one of the issues with kind of you know again like Western. I agree with you; it's pretty much a meaningless term. But there's, there's a good term that I like. Weird. I don't know if you ever come across it. It's an acronym. Let me see if I can find the the actual acronym. Um, I think Heinrich, a guy named Heinrich, came with this acronym. And weird, yes. So the, he coined the term weird to describe a lack of diversity in research. But WEIRD stands for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. Okay, so that's from what, when I say Western, I pretty much uh, mean kind of like this particular subjectivity of post-industrial society that has these characteristics in common. People that are Western, people that are educated, that are living in industrialized or post-industrial societies, they're rather rich, at least in relation to the rest of the world, and um, live in democratic societies or pseudo-democratic societies and so forth, which is kind of like the cultural zeitgeist from which modern psychology still keeps emerging. One of the things with uh you know weird science or weird psychology in this instance is that there is a tendency to universalize that particular understanding of the mind or the psyche as if it was valid for everybody else as well which is one of the main problems um with western psychology and psychiatry that we think that because we have done all this research on western industrial educated you know so on and so forth subjects those are things that can be extrapolated and also are matched to everybody else. As if like humans were some sort of uh, universal being outside of a particular culture or a particular ontology. One of the things that I found pretty quickly is that actually in the Amazon, uh, many of the things that we take for granted as being universal qualities of the human mind are actually very specific to the kinds of minds that we are more familiar with. Uh, many of the diagnoses, for example, I mean, if you ask any, you know, kind of like more mainstream psychiatrists, they'll tell you, oh, yeah, like, you know, things like anxiety or depression or ADHD or autism are things that are objective, right? I mean, even though they rely on kind of like checklists of symptoms, uh, whether you are in the U.S. or in the Amazon rainforest or in China or in the Solomon Islands in, you know, Oceania, then uh, pretty much everybody will suffer from the same things because these are actual objective diagnoses that you can find rooted in some sort of abnormal psychology or so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, these things are not necessarily true. And I think maybe maybe Jason and Brian, you also had similar experiences, uh, for example, during the consultations, right? Like consultations for me were really interesting. Consult maybe just kind of to expand a little bit more of what the consultations were as part of the workshops that we, were that we were facilitating, part of that workshop meant that one of the days uh, the facilitators, which are 
us, kind of like Western people for the most part, and the people people that were in charge of the medical magical part of the retreat, would get together and see all the participants one by one to hear from them what was it that they were, what was ailing them, what was it they were there to work on, what was it they were there to heal, right? And in my experience, I started realizing oftentimes that many times even the facilitators were kind of like obviating terms that we thought were universal and everybody could understand what they meant, but they weren't. Right? It took me a while to start realizing that when I said depression or anxiety, that wasn't straightforward for the Shipibo healers, what I was, what people meant when they were saying they were depressed or anxious. Because we tend to think, oh, this is just something that is real. Depression is an objective you know, experience that everybody can have. It's an objective diagnosis that is rooted in some sort of neurotransmitter, um, you know, imbalance, structural things in the brain, so on and so forth. And I remember like myself oftentimes like having to actually expand on what that meant afterwards. And like, well, you know, when people mean depression, what they mean is that, or, you know, have, have the person actually like the, the, the pasajero, the, 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 the guest in the retreat, actually make a bigger effort in talking about depression in different ways, right? Like actually like tell me more about what depression looks like for you. Or what is that experience for you? So we can relate to that experience beyond just the term or the diagnosis, right? And then they would go into kind of like these phenomenological descriptions that were much more rich and much more human, right? They would be like, well, you know, I've been really sad for a very long time. But it's not just like the regular sadness. It's like this sadness that also carries with it a degree of despair, where I can't really see the end of it, where I can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But also it's a kind of sadness and despair that also goes with a lot of uh, lack of energy. Like I can't, I don't really feel that I can get up in the morning and do stuff. Like there's there's all sorts of different implications that go beyond just feeling sad, right? So, you know, like start to communicating or anxiety, right? Like start communicating with these people. Well, anxiety is kind of like worry. Well, like they, they will call it preocupaciones, right? Mm-hmm. So like this person has too many preocupaciones in their head. And they were like, well, yes, but it's not only preocupaciones. It's kind of like an irrational preocupaciones. It's like a preoccupation or a worry that is not actually rooted in any real event in my life right now, but something that actually is there all the time. Kind of like this low vibration, tachycardia, not in my stomach, this constant worry about the future, even though there's nothing right now in my immediate future that I should be worried about. But nonetheless, like this heaviness of always thinking there's something that's going to go wrong in any given moment, right? Like anxiety is a very different experience than just worry. At least that's how the majority of people would express it. Like, yeah, anxiety is not just worrying about something, it's something else, right? Um, so, you know, in my experience, this was kind of like an eye opener, like communicating in much more detail phenomenologically what anxiety, what depression can be, you know, to a Shipil person who doesn't share the same world of meaning when it comes to these human experiences, because perhaps depression or anxiety are not necessarily terms that they use to describe their own experiences. So, well, I guess that was a tangent, I guess, but just to kind of like bring back this idea that actually psychology is not a universal thing. There's ethnopsychologies that belong to very particular cultures, very particular ways of understanding the world that draw right from the way that we understand ourselves and our place in the world as a whole. So I think, you know, to go back to Jason's original question, what the main difference is, it's like Amazonian ontologies are completely different. Like an ontology, I mean... Um, you know, the idea of what the world is like or what exists in the world. Like when we talk about ontology, at least kind of in philosophy or psychology, we mean about kind of like this basic understanding of what the world is. What are the entities that inhabit this world? Who are the actors or players 
that are part of this world, right? And in the Amazon, the ontology is completely different than the ones that we have in kind of like materialistic, atomistic societies where the world is made of matter, you know, and individuals are individuals. And in the Amazon, things are not like it. Right? Like the, 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 the main unit, the basic unit in the Amazon is not atoms. It's being it's spirit it's like humanity like the humanity is the only thing that is shared and there's human people and there's bird people and plant people and tree people and cloud people and river people and all of these people uh are just the same as humans in the sense that they share the same human qualities that oftentimes in the west we ascribe only to humans right agency intentionality intelligence the capacity to feel emotions to hold grudges to be angry to be joyful right so there's a very basic difference in the way that medical systems emerge from a particular ontology, right? Like medical systems are, they are not created in a vacuum. They emerge from a particular understanding of what the world is like, right? In the Amazon, and this is something that probably you experience oftentimes, right? When a person is ill or when a person expresses an illness or a sickness, this illness never happens just because. It's always relational. There's always a reason why that person is ill. And that reason is oftentimes, or almost always, because somebody else made them ill, right? Like there's always a relational component of it, whether it's like some other person through brujería or another forest being through cupia or cutipado, right? Like this is kind of like Amazonian diagnostic categories. But pretty much everything is always, like any illness can be traced back to the agency of another entity in the vast ecosystem of sentience that is the rainforest, right? So even trauma as a standalone category doesn't really make sense in the context of the Amazonian medical system because we think of traumas oftentimes, oh, like something really shitty happened to me that created this, you know, big imprint and so on and so forth. But if you think about one, the equivalent that Jason mentioned before, like the susto, which is not, it doesn't map one-to-one to what we understand as trauma, but, you know, it does kind of like a pretty good job at getting close to what is in a trauma, right? Like, like, a, like a frightful event, like something that happens that leaves this kind of energetic or emotional imprint in us that is very difficult to shake. But a susto, again, like a susto is always relational. But like that person got a susto because they walked under the wrong lupuna or they hunted whatever they were not supposed to hunt or they didn't respect the pact of reciprocity in the moment of dieting, right? Like there's always relational things that have to do with what that person feels. So... You know, at the very basic, uh, in the very most basic sense of what a healer is doing when rehealing a person, right? It's not only about clearing energies and figuring out. It's kind of like always kind of like this relational issue of also repairing that broken reciprocity or repairing that broken relationship or defeating the offending sorcerer or appeasing the lupuna that got offended because we didn't do the thing. You know, there's always kind of like this relational thing, right? So... I think oftentimes we can like miss that part that is not only always about the individual, it's about the individual embedded within this interdependent network of relationships. And the healing always entails primary attention to this network of relationships beyond just the individual person. That's kind of like a rant, but I think this is kind of like a good segue into something else. But no, I think um, just to maybe distill it a little bit, uh, yeah, Western, it, it's not a very helpful term now. Um, Agreed. It speaks to people who have some European ancestry in their heritage, but uh, what we call Western has uh, become, well, it's spread across the globe now. So 
maybe we could think of it as um, not indigenous versus Western people, but indigenous versus civilized people. And so indigenous means that someone that's born from a piece of land. And with that comes a set of instructions on how to live in right relations with the land. Civilized people, uh, when we talk about ourselves, we don't uh, first say, talk about our relationship to the land. You know, there's a disconnect there. And there's a loss of agreements with the land. And so, I, like what Adam was saying, one of the causes for illness in indigenous systems would be the failure to uphold the agreement with the land. So not just, um, you know, the brujo putting a, a curse on you or the jealous lover uh, casting a spell on you or something, but also that agreement with the land being broken, like walking under the lapuna tree or, or pissing on the wrong tree or something, you know? And so that's one of the things that we're lacking here. And that's one of the reasons why, for me, this is so tied up in maybe a wider consideration of uh, ecological preservation. The hyper-focus on the individual, lack of understanding of being in right relations and repairing relations with the land, with our own lineages, all of that. And so like what we're talking about is back to this uh, notion of colonization of indigenous healing cultures. And so the sickness in us, I think, is that um, colonial mindset. And that's the spell that first needs to be broken. And unless we break that spell, every time we go to indigenous people for our quote-unquote healing, our individual healing, we're always going to be bringing that virus with us. We're going to be bringing that trouble with us, and we're going to be spreading it around. So, yeah, that's my two cents. I think there, there's there's something I think... Um... I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. And, you know, I think it, there's a very real thing that we do tend to export our ideas, ideologies, ways of doing things and superimpose them on other ways of doing things whenever we can benefit from it, of course. And that's definitely happening right now with plant medicines. Yeah, like we are, you know, very much changing the way that things work whenever it is that we work with you know, with Shipibos, for example, I think, I mean, so I, people are doing research on this. I'm not the most qualified person to talk about it, but I think in the last 10, 15 years, like the Shipibo practice is completely changed to what it was 15, 20 years ago, mostly because there's a very strong incentive for them to work with us, monetary incentive, obviously, and reputation and so on and so forth to adapt their practice to what are our expectations, what it is that we want from them. You know I mean, we, don't, we come to the jungle, we don't want to just sit in the maloca to be and being sung to. I mean, good luck filling up a retreat and covering your operational costs. If you're just like saying like, hey, like you guys come here for 12 days and you're not gonna drink ayahuasca, you're just gonna sit in the maloca and receive songs from <laughs> the healers. Like you're gonna have one person, maybe two persons every retreat. It just wouldn't work, right? So, you know, as the, the most basic things have already changed, this idea that everybody has to drink ayahuasca, <laughs> this idea that an initiated person that has never, like, just shows up in the jungle and gets, like, a full cup of... I mean, these, these things are pretty pretty new, let's say. But also, I think um, 
there's something that I don't particularly like about the overuse of colonization and terms like cultural appropriation, which, you know, I think I, I understand the rationality behind it, but also to some extent, these things are absurd. In particular, when it comes to shamanism, because shamanism has always been an extremely fluid practice, particularly like Amazonian shamanism in that sense is has always relied on the constant fluidity and exchange of knowledge, of information, of people traveling across the jungle and now traveling across the world, right? Like getting new ideas, bringing new ideas home, sharing their knowledge, sharing their thing. And it's very, very weird uh, for me to have this idea that somehow traditions are crystallized in some sort of, uh, you know, uh, idealized traditional state completely untouched by western influence and so on and so forth and i mean i understand there's a lot of fantasy involved in this right because again like we you know for the most part we come from these disenchanted societies and i think like that's one of the main drivers actually for people wanting to go to the rainforest to drink ayahuasca we're longing for that you know ancestral untouched unpolluted you know connection to the mystery and connection to nature and things and like everything that hasn't been tainted by the corrupting forces of consumerism and capitalism and money and so on and so forth and it's very alluring and a lot of people do get to the rainforest and try to impose that fantasy into what's actually happening and you know perhaps that works for a while but sooner than later they're gonna start realizing what's happening and perhaps get disappointed and see like well you know, you and Brian, you and I talked about it like last time, right? Like we, we oftentimes imagine indigenous people as being kind of like these remnants of, you know, some sort of like pre-modern, pre-religious, uh, pristine condition, kind of like the noble savage, right? Of, uh, you know, kind of like the, the, the pre, the literature of the last century and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, Underneath all the people regalia, there's the crosses, right? Like Christianity is very present in their practice. Like you cannot disconnect nowadays the syncretism of the Amazonian, you know, pristine medical system, but also the massive influence that evangelization has had on everybody oh, in the rainforest. There's the, cr there's the cross, but often the Britney Spears t-shirt as well. <laughs> right, yes. The Britney Spears t-shirt. I mean, oftentimes I, I love it. That was one of my favorite things. Like all these people, ladies wearing kind of this pop culture attire. They don't even know what it says. And the, it just, well, the, the Cindy Lauper t-shirt is one I remember. Girls just want to have fun. Beautiful. I love it's that. It's great. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I understand colonization, cultural appropriation. I mean, these are kind of like these you know, common critiques of things. And to some extent, of course, there's validity in them, but, but also, you know, I mean, it is, it is important to also acknowledge that th these things are not static. They're not crystallized. Shamanism and, and the Amazon has always been fluid. It always relies on people coming and going, getting new information. I mean, you know, we have like new generations of Shipibo healers that they need to be able to have the language that is expected from them because of the public that they're catering from, right? And, you know, like many of the Shipibo, many of the younger, not, I mean, not the older ones, of course, they, they, you know, many of them don't even speak Spanish, but, you know, the younger generations, they are conversant in psychological terms. They understand much more about what it is that people expect to hear. They even know about chakras. Some of them go to yoga classes. And, you know, there's like kind of like this constant enrichment and fluidity of the tradition that doesn't necessarily dilute it in my experience. Sometimes you can enrich it. So, you know, you just... Shamanism is fluid. It's always in conversation. It's always in dialogue. It's always getting new things and shedding old things and having... 
And, you know, these are just concerns that are valid, but also to some extent it's important to be critical of these concepts as concepts. Well, let me just interject there. Uh, so one of the things I think is a problem with the colonial mindset is the use of universal terminology like shamanism right uh there are many as you know many different uh shamanic traditions uh so yeah and they're all alive and they're evolving i think one good example of that is when i was at mayan Tiaku, which is a, a s small non-commercial center uh run by juan flores who's a nashanican healer um and so he's got his own repertoire and style of ikaro and in I remember one ceremony, his one of his sons came in who had been apprenticing with him for years, and his style of ikaro was so different. Like with Juan's other uh, with apprentices, you could hear like they had picked up on Juan's style at a certain uh, set of melodies that would be repeated and uh, certain themes that would show up. But um, when Juan's son came in. I just, I was struck by the difference and the kind of rhythm and cadence. And what I found out was he was really into hip hop. And so it was this kind of like chopped and screwed Ikaro style that was really kind of low and rhythmic and pulsing. Uh, and I thought that was really cool. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, their traditions are alive. Um, I think the problem for me and why I use the word colonization is when our ideals are uh, not just superimposed, but uh, forced upon these people. Like one of the reasons why some of these healers are gaining knowledge about chakras and new age concepts and psychological concepts is because they're being forced to uh, do trainings. and. It's part of the commercial enterprise is to speak the language of your customers and give them what they want. Um, you know, they want a big experience. Okay, maybe we should add some toe or something else to the ayahuasca brew so they have a, a bigger experience because that's what they're looking for. And if they don't get it, they're going to be disappointed and they're not going to come back. I mean, so, yeah, I hear you. I'm not so much worried about cultural appropriation for all the reasons you mentioned. I mean, this has been the way of the world. It's it's impossible to find anything that's quote unquote pure. Uh, that's a complete fantasy. There's always been exchange of ideas and technologies, um, spiritual concepts. Even what we call Western is mostly comes from uh, Northern Africa and the Middle East, you know. Um, it's like a, you know, Christianity, Christian culture is like a blend of Greek mystery traditions, which were very influenced by what happened in Babylonia and uh, Egypt, uh, mixed up with these, uh, you know, a Middle Eastern Judaism. It, I mean, it's the strangest thing in itself. Uh, and so there's, there's nothing pure about it, and there never has been. So the, the kind of purity thing, I'm not so concerned about. It's more the um, the commercialization and the imposition of uh, Western concepts on other ways of knowing. One of the the examples uh, that I was thinking about that came up that, that kind of ties into these ideas of imposition, also safety, um, was 
where I was working at, at one point, there was this uh, kind of this policy that came in place where the the, the healers, the curanderos, couldn't drink alcohol anymore, and and I find. I found that very bad. I mean, actually to the point where I, where I left because of that, uh, because for me, that very much felt like an imposition, uh, you know, because it was someone from the outside telling these people how to do their work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, often b- between ceremonies, we would go up to the local village and I mean, the, the healers would get trashed. I mean, you know, I have photos of them passed out on the floor and, <laughs> you know, they were dancing and singing and, and having sex and doing very human things. But it was very fascinating because I also saw that that was also coming from a place of the trauma of the outside people, that they thought alcohol was bad. They thought having sex was bad. They thought dancing and partying whilst working with ayahuasca was bad. Uh, It also reminded me uh, of another example of when I first came down there, I was doing martial arts. And and for me, martial arts is a very spiritual path. I mean, I've learned as much from martial arts as I have plant medicine. But there was this idea that somehow martial arts was bad. It was violent. It wasn't in in alignment with ayahuasca work because ayahuasca was light and love and, and union and purity. Uh, meanwhile, the Shipibo themselves were warriors and hunters, and for their festivals, they would wrestle. That was like their sport, and they would actually fight each other with knives. And the idea was to cut the back of the neck of someone. You know, so it very much was this kind of imposition of, of some idea of who these people should be. And, uh, you know, I actually found that very dangerous because if you, if you create a false notion of who someone is, then you actually take away the reality of who someone is. And, you know, another very common archetype I saw was, was like women who would come down and, and throw themselves at, at these, especially male healers, because in their mind, they didn't drink alcohol, they didn't have sex, they were monks, they were in communion with God all day long. And so of course, you would throw themselves at them, because what do you have to worry about? But the reality is they're men, and they do like to have sex, and they do like to drink. And if you throw yourself at a man like that, like you're not putting yourself in a safe situation, which is also very uh, kind of uh, you know paradoxical because the whole idea is about safety. But that's actually not creating a yeah. safe environment because you're not being honest, you're not being true, and you're imposing outside views of who these people should be. Um you know, and again, it, it's a certain mindset, I think, of how, in a more Western psychologized view, what the relationship between the doctor and the patient is. And it's this certain ideas of professionality, of, of lines that maybe should or shouldn't be crossed. And yet, this isn't that. It's a very different work and it's a very different very worldview. Different. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, not just the relationship between patient and doctor, but like I was saying, um, these jungle healers, they're kind of like doctor priests. So there's that whole allure of the guru that this is tied up in with as well, you know. Uh, but I think that, that allure is, is constructive. This is one of the really interesting things. And the responsibility of that lays in part on the centers themselves because the way that they market the things and the culture that has grown around those things and the superimposition of this guru archetype that is omniscient and all-knowing and all-benevolent from the Eastern traditions into a completely different context where this archetype doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. 
Where do you all think, you know, one of the things you're talking about, Adam, was this idea of translation. And, and um, you know, I think translation is actually much more difficult than we actually think. We, we often think that it's just a matter of translating words. But, you know, as you were saying, there, there's concepts, there's cosmovisions. Uh, you know, one of the most common things that, that I think is very difficult for people to understand is this idea of brujeria or witchcraft. Yeah. I mean, that can be translated in so many different ways. But even things like, uh, you know, malaire, which is where malaria yeah. comes from, you know, for, yeah. from a more Western point of view, we say, well, that's a parasite that's transmuted through a mosquito, from an indigenous point of view, it, it's a bad energy that's translated through the air. I mean, those concepts aren't that different, but but it is a very different worldview. Um, you know, I was also reminded, I, I think it, it was an English or Swiss physician, and um, this was maybe in the 17th century, and, and he noticed that that when he was, when doctors were giving uh they were often doing like operations on people and then they'd go and give, uh, they'd, they'd help to birth ch uh, ch children and, and they wouldn't wash their hands in between. And he developed, this, yeah. Yeah. And he developed this theory that you should wash your hands because there's these microorganisms, there's these, these things that, that are contaminating babies. And he was so laughed at and ridiculed that he actually ended yeah. up in a, in a mental hospital. Um, because from that cosmovision, that is insane. There's these things that you can't see. There's these invisible right. forces. There's these spirits. There's these bad energies. And that by magically doing this this ritual with your hands, you can cure that. And, and so he was so ridiculed because that was outside the cosmovision until an instrument was developed called the microscope. And then all of a sudden that was reality. Um, yeah. you know, and, and I also wonder if you all think that actually these plants are in a way part of that shift in cosmovision, because it does seem like not, you know, and again, it's not universal and, and you can't necessarily speak in universal terms, but it does seem like a very common archetype when people do go very deeply into a plant medicine experience is their worldview is changed. They can't necessarily rationalize everything in the same way as before. Even though they may try, there are certain things that they see or experience or they feel that are so outside of their cosmovision that, that in a way they're then forced to use new language. Yeah. Well, I think one of the functions of an in initiation is an expansion of the, the worldview. Um, you know, like the story of Ganesha uh, getting his head cut off and an elephant head put on. That's an example of the metaphor of this expanded uh, worldview or consciousness. Um, so th that's all part and parcel. I think we need to allow that to happen. And I think often the the narratives that people are indoctrinated with, even before they go to the ceremony, are, are so limiting because it's always, again, centered around the atomized individual disconnected from land and lineage and culture. Uh, you know, that that's a big complaint with psychotherapy in general, is that it uh, happens in the confines of the clinical space, and it's usually focused on personal biography. Um, and to me, like, it's a thing that Jung said that really resonates with me is that it's not so much we solve our problems as we outgrow them. And one of the ways mm. we outgrow them is by expanding our sense of who we are and what our relationship is with the world and 
and even within history. So learning our own ancestral histories, um, that's all a big part of it. And then in comparison, the individual suffering becomes smaller in comparison, and that allows us to tolerate the suffering. It doesn't make it go away, but uh, it puts it in a larger context. And so I keep coming back to this, is expanding the context, expanding the story um, around healing. Uh, yeah, that's what comes to mind for me. I think Jason, you asked at some point earlier, like, what was it that drew us to plant medicine? And Brian said that from his experience, it was actually trauma that was kind of the gateway to want to uh, try plant medicine. For me, it was different. For me, it was sheer curiosity. I think it was my, my first few experiences that I had with mushrooms and LSD and, you know, the, the doors and windows of mystery that opened to me of me too. simply a realization that the world was much more mysterious than I ever imagined through my previous lens of reference. And then, you know, I saw ayahuasca as an opportunity to go deeper into that sense of, oh, of wonder, like what, what the hell is even going on behind the veil? Right. So, I mean, for me, it was more of that metaphysical, ontological curiosity of getting closer to those mysteries that I glimpse in my first few experiences. And I think that is one of the things that psychedelics in general and ayahuasca more particularly are very good at providing. But like that cleansing of the lenses so they can actually realize that whatever it is we call reality is but a fraction of a much deeper, complex, mysterious something, right, that envelops us, that there's many more actors that are present, that there's many more relationships that we're unaware of, that there's many more layers of intricacy to, you know, enchantment. I think the enchantment. So, you know, I think you, what you were asking now um, I think, you know, what I've seen many times when people spend enough time drinking ayahuasca, being in the rainforest, dieting, facilitating, kind of like living this life, is that I think like many people go through phases, right? Like initially there's kind of like this mind-blowing enchantment and then, oh, wow, like my previous frame of reference was completely inadequate to even start to comprehend or grasp what's happening. So I'm going to go to the next one, right? And then, you know, oftentimes the, the thing that makes sense is like, well, you know, if I'm dieting with these particular people and they have their own frame of reference and they can, they can root and anchor those experiences into a sense-making framework that they provide that makes more sense, then, you know, I'm going to go to that you know, and a lot of people do that. And I think, you know, a lot of people stay there for a while. So like, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm now, I'm a, now I'm a, now I'm a Shipibo religious person, you know, like now everything I'm going to interpret according to, you know, my interpretation of what the Shipibo worldview is, because we never get, of course, the real thing. We get the one that has been highly diluted, highly sanitized, uh, a caricature. I call it, a, I, I call it an ontological caricature. An ontological caricature that is provided for us through the marketing, you know, the webpage of the site of the site we're dieting with, or the communications that we get, or you know, like oh, like you know, you're gonna go diet Bob Insana plant, and Bob Insana plant is a very kind spirit that is very good for showing you love, and kind of like this this absurd caricature, okay, that's re this reduction of a 
whatever it is, a plant, an entity, a spirit, a teacher, into kind of like these bullet points of the things that this plant does for you and, you know, what the spirit of this plant is like and, you know, this ontological caricature. And I think a lot of people get caught up in this ontological caricature, so sometimes for years, right? And that's the only frame of reference they have for interpretation. And that's, that's, that's what they pass on to other people as well. <laughs> this is, I think this, you were talking about the problem of uh, translation, right? And the problem of translation is that there's so many different frames of reference that we want to draw from. And depending on what our level of understanding is, then we may be translating according to that particular interpretation. So one of the main problems, for example, with that thing is exactly as you were saying, is like, what happens when we come face to face with phenomena or stories or interpretation of things that are so far outside of our frame of reference that they can cause kind of like a break, like that ontological break or that thing or that fear to creep out, right? Um, I, you know, since I started healing from healing, one of the, one of the things that I wanted to do was to work with people who got damaged because of bad facilitation or because they weren't given the right tools to deal with their experiences. And a lot of people started trickling in. And I had one person that I was working in for a while who went to a retreat center, different one, and she had a facilitator who was probably very kind and probably well-intentioned, but not very skilled or not very experienced. And basically what happened was for this particular person, through the experience, they had like this scary experience. And then, uh, you know, she was really freaked out. And then the facilitator came and they had a conversation. And then the facilitator said, oh, like that sounds like spirit possession. And then, you know, she had to confirm that with the healers. So they had some conversation about spirit possession and whatever it is that she understood that the healers were saying through her own lens of interpretation and her own attachment to a particular story. And they managed to convince this person that she was possessed by bad spirits. Two days afterwards, of course, she was gone back, <laughs> back in the US. Now, not only feeling shitty because whatever the thing was happening before, but now also 100% convinced that she was suffering from spirit possession and she was, you know. And now it took a very long time to work through this belief system that was implanted on her because of bad facilitation, because of bad translation, right? because of a lack of understanding of the impact that such a diagnosis can have on the actual belief system of a person. And you know, this is something that happens quite often. This is just one example. But this happens quite a lot in big ways and also in small ways. right? And if we're not extremely careful all the time in how we translate things culturally, right? in what is it actually that that person wants to uh, or needs to know what the condition is and having like a good way of managing that interaction, right? Not only language wise, but also culturally wise, also medically wise. Also like, well, what does that actually mean in ways that are not going to cause iatrogenic damage, right? Like iatrogenic damage is a, is a term for whenever the damage is actually medically induced. So there's a lot of iatrogenic damage coming from retreat centers and bad facilitation in the sense that sometimes people end up worse off because now they have a another belief system that they didn't have before that is causing more stress and more damage and so on. So that facilitation is important, right? That translation is important. And what I found often, I mean, at least the position that I arrived with afterwards, and I think a lot of the people that I resonate with more in this world is, is that at some point we had to let go also of kind of like the very structured interpretation of whatever the, you know, dogmatic Shipibo way of doing things is and so on and so forth and come up to kind of like a place of 
radical and knowing, right? So kind of like this, this kind of like more spaciousness of understanding of like, you know, if there's one thing that these things are pointing, and this is my opinion, but if there's one thing that these things are pointing out to is that things are mysterious and every framework that we try to impose on them, it's always going to be inadequate. And if we're not careful enough, we're just perpetuating this damage through dogmatic interpretations of things that are just causing more and more iatrogenic damage. So I think like, you know, it is very important to be aware of what are the narratives and ideologies that are present in the, in, you know, in the, in the, in the praxis of a particular place, but also that whoever is interpreting or providing this translation or facilitation has the capacity to actually have, you know, a good solid understanding of these different frameworks. I mean, I want to, you know, a good grasp on Western psychology, a good grasp on Shipibo ontology, a good grasp on all of these different, you know, depth psychology, of course, a very important one, perhaps a little bit of like all these different things, but also kind of like the fluidity to know none of these frameworks provide a nearly adequate explanation for the depth of the phenomena that we're experiencing. And we have to be able to communicate that to the person in front of us, right? Like what we are fundamentally dealing here with is deep, deep, deep mystery. Yeah, there's something in that. Um, let me see if I can articulate this. So coming back to the, the idea of indigeneity, uh, ayahuasca is indigenous to a particular place. And what comes along with that is a particular culture, different cultural values, different cultural stories, creation stories, ontologies, all of that. And I guess I, I have an issue with the idea that that, should, that that's negotiable, that, that, uh, that can be translated to suit the person who's coming into that place. Um, and so again, that's that's to me goes back to the, the the colonial assumption that everything uh, should be adapted to conform with my values and my worldview. Um, so I, I think that's problematic. It's problematic for me, and I think one of the things that we can do to guard against that is to not even go into those um, situations until we have our own ontology and belief system worked out to a certain degree. Uh, so in that way, we can go in with someone who's, who's, uh, who's full, who's not so hungry for that. Um, and we can meet the other in, I think, a more healthy, respectful way, like respecting the differences and the distance between the two, um, because I come with a better sense of who I am and where I come from. Uh, so I don't know. Is that... Uh, yeah, I hear you. I hear sense? you. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. And again, like, I, I I hear you. And I think, yes, I mean, it's 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 very pretentious in many ways, I guess, that, you know, we want to come to the rainforest and we want to, you know, bring our own framework of interpretation and we want to kind of like get close to the local world, but not too close and so on and so forth. But, you know, I think the thing that I'm saying for the most part, actually, is that it's very, very, very difficult for anybody, any any of us, any facilitator to actually be able to provide the frame of, the frame of reference that is uh, 
close enough or loyal enough to what actually that means for the people people that we're working with. There's always going to be a massive distance that is due to the interpretation, the lack of shared language. I mean, you know, we see this, for example, with the yoga world all the time, right? Like we have like hundreds of, I don't know, I don't know how many, but tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of yoga teachers going around the world pretending there's some spiritual authority in some spiritual system that they actually have nothing to do with and very little knowledge of. And it starts from the very basic things. You cannot be a yoga teacher, right? If you don't put the legwork to actually go and learn Sanskrit because there's such a strong, you know, intrinsic link between the language and the practice and the philosophy. I mean, you can, to some extent, teach some yoga, teach asana, right? Like be a very proficient calisthenics guide and lead a calisthenics class and, you know, share some of the yogic wisdom according to your own frame of reference. But to call, you know, for a person that doesn't speak Sanskrit or has never spent time in, you know, I mean, there's kind of like this vast distance that I think is kind of like a very... Uh, non-obvious things for a lot of people. And I think the same goes for the Shipibo, right? If you don't speak the Shipibo language, if you're not embedded with the Shipibo culture, if you haven't spent long evenings in the middle of the Maloka laughing and crying and doing all the things with the Shipibo and like, like really, you know, not only dieting, but like really living that for, you know, in the most basic sense, then it's very, very difficult for anyone to like really be able to like provide a routing on a frame of reference that is so different, ontologically different from the one that we know. Yeah. And I think it is good for people to try and get as close as we can to it. Yeah. It's important that if we do go to the rainforest, that we do make an effort to learn as much as we can about Shipibo mythology, the Shipibo medical system, and the plants that they use, and the Shipibo language, and all of these things, right? But knowing always, right, that there's there's always going to be a distance, I think, that we can't really fully account for what that interpretation or what that framework is going to be like. And hence, hence, right, if we are working with a Western public, if we are working with people that are primarily coming from a highly psychologized, you know, that are seeking a highly psychologized interpretations, then we, are, we, we have to be able to make that translation, just even if it's just for the pure fact of not making more damage. Of not just blurting out, oh, like, you know, they're saying that you're possessed by the tree of the Nosferatu and this plant and you just, you know, yeah. forever damage yourself because you didn't do this thing right. And like, okay, well, let's, let's maybe take a critical step back and see how can we actually communicate something in a way that doesn't sound like their life is fucked forever now. Yeah, but that's one of the perils of entering into another culture. Um, and so... I think it's important to respect the distance between the two and not impose our interpretations or transliterations of their worldview into something where it doesn't actually fit at all and could never fit. Um, of course. You know, where in, uh, where in psychology is there a correlation to something like a blockado, an energy blockage? Uh, you know, th it just, it doesn't work. And just compromise. We well, I don't think we should um, feel the need to make it work to do that translation. If the indigenous healer says that you've got a spirit possession, well, maybe you should ask them on how to deal with that, you know, rather than send someone back to a, a psychologist to uh, work out the 
I don't know, the archetypal imbalance or something that we've interpreted spirit possession as. Um, I just think we need a great more amount of respect for what's different, what's other, what's not ours, and and to deal with the consequences of that. Um, yeah. No one said that you should have the right and privilege to go to Peru and go enter into this whole different culture. But there's the sense of entitlement of the northerner, of the civilized person, of the westerner. So I think that's that's where the real problem is. It's within the person who is doing the seeking. Um, and I want to put the responsibility back on them to deal with their own shit. Um, you know, so maybe this is a time to bring this in. So uh, this, the Jungian psychologist, James Hollis, he he told me that um, the way that he defines what a healthy ego is, because, you know, we often talk about this kind of thing, like, what does it mean to have a healthy ego? Uh, he said it's the ability to, to to tolerate what he called the three A's, ambiguity, ambivalence, and anxiety. Yeah, I like that. And what I see often with the inability to tolerate those things is a movement toward seeking clarity so all the reductionism that we've been talking about the dilution uh the concretization of complex concepts into one simple thing um, a sense of certainty um the dogmatism you know uh and and a feeling of like confidence or something you know like i know what i know and and this is what's right and all of that uh, so for me, like, it's not only the sign of a healthy ego, but it's a sign of like a mature, like a spiritually and psychologically mature person to be able to tolerate levels of amb ambiguity, um, yeah. of anxiety, even, you know, the anxiety about not knowing, uh, you know, so Absolutely. Th that's what it comes back to for me is putting the responsibility back on the person seeking the healing from the other and being a kind of interloper into a place where they don't really belong and coming with all these expectations and the sense of entitlement and all of that, you know? Right. So maybe more radical. No, I mean, I, <laughs> like, I, I agree with you, but you know, I mean, who, 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 whose responsibility is that? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a person in, in Mexico city or in, or in Vancouver. And I, you know, I've been depressed for 20 years and you know, the, psychiatric system has failed me i can't really get myself up or have like a quality of life and i'm hearing a podcast and there's two guys talking about ayahuasca for mental health and i'm like oh wow like this shit seems to be working and i wanna i wanna i wanna i wanna i feel entitled to feel better and i want to travel to peru and i want to try this thing and you know i arrive to what seems to me to be a very safe and prestigious retreat center right because that's what i think that i want to do and it's run and, by white people and so there's translators right. there and there's western facilitators everything i right. need to feel comfortable well right away you know we've got a problem <laughs> in my view i i mean again but this this is reality and these things exist and they're going to continue to exist 
Yeah, like people are not going to stop traveling into the rainforest and retreat centers are not going to stop operating. They're going to operate more because there's more and more demand. Because, you know, by the end of the day, and this is thing, something that is important to acknowledge, you know, despite all the critical points that we can provide and for all the different angles and things, you know, by the end of the day, and this is supported by my research, by the way, you know, like the vast majority of people who go through an ayahuasca retreat, the vast majority of them get a lot out of it. They do get a lot out of it. You know, I don't know how, how much of that stays after one year, two years, three years, four years, five years. But at the very least, you know, when people go home, they're feeling better. They're feeling more energized. They're feeling like, hey, like there's a new window of opportunity for me to change my habits, my outlook of life, to start kind of like a new chapter in a different way. Like, you know, it's important to acknowledge that, you know, sometimes people do need that kind of like desperate measure of traveling halfway across the world to have a psychedelic brew and 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 and, and they feel good you know it works at least for a little bit it provides with an opportunity and these things exist yeah we, we're not talking conceptually about whether people should travel or not travel or whether it's a good thing that you know the ayahuasca traditions have opened up and globalizing all over the world these are these are facts of life at the moment these things are happening and they will continue to be happening. We're trying to find ways that we can compromise or what are the things that we can actually do better to exactly address the concerns, you know, many of the concerns that we have. And, I, you know, I share all of your concerns. <laughs> I'm not fighting you on it. I think these are like very real things. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, like having this massive shamanic industry or, you know, spiritual tourism and medical tourism, whatever you want to call it, I mean, it's having an impact ecologically it's having an impact culturally it's it's having an impact in you know widening the gaps you know between certain shipio families that have and all the rest that don't have like this is creating a lot of internal friction among the communities i mean this is not the void of issues this is very real things um you know but they're, they're also addressing them in their own ways right like there's you know onaya associations popping up and shipio associations that are trying to moderate their own you know according to their own needs and so on like you know, they're not passive actors, right? Like, this is something that is also very important. Like, it's not just that, you know, Shipibo people and Shipibo healers and these traditions are just being fully exploited and manipulated by Western interests. Like, they they, they themselves have their own interests and their own agency, and mm -hmm. they participate in things because they also see that in their best interest to participate in. Yeah, we I mean, we can say, like, oh, like, this is a tragedy because now all the Shipio communities are losing all the traditional healers because all the traditional healers are now working on Western-owned ayahuasca retreat centers, which is true. But at the same time, I mean, who am I to tell, you know, that person, like, hey, like, you shouldn't go and make money in this place. You should stay in your community and not make money because, you know, your people, you know, they doesn't make any sense. Like, we can't impose also, you know, they are in some way being imposed into a kind of like a globalized system of how things work in the world. But at the same time, you know, we have to also kind of like take into account that they have their own um, agency. Oh, sure. Yeah. What I'm advocating for is, um, you know, us in the North taking care of our side of the cultural bridge before yeah. we cross it and and bring a lot of our troubles to them uh, of course they have their own agency their own dreams and goals uh, all of that but i'm just advocating that we take care of our business before we cross that bridge it would be incredible if there was an education prerequisite for people before they travel to an amazonian retreat center for example yeah like mm -hmm. it's like 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 a minimum amount of education about the place that you're going to visit 
what is it like in the Amazonian, you know, north in the northwestern Amazonian basin? What languages well, are spoken? Which people inhabit that? Yes, like, what that's is what I'm saying. The cultural like? education, because often, you know, all we hear about is, uh, you know, what kind of clothing you should bring and don't forget the mosquito repellent. And this is what uh, the, the climate's like that time of year. But, you know, Absolutely. don't see in that preparation a, a cultural education. Yeah, you don't. That would be and, and it's just an example that. Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, no. I was saying, like, you know, I mean, we could we could say the same thing, just as a general, you know, as a general thing for in global tourism, right? Like, I mean, people are gonna go and live in Bali. People are gonna go and live in Copangan. People are gonna come, you know, and be digital nomads in Mexico City. Like, you know, like like everybody should have like a minimum amount of awareness and education about what the place they're going to be living in or visiting is like, what languages are spoken, hopefully speak some of that language, you know, so on and so forth. I think we do emphasize quite a lot this particular form of tourism because, you know, there's something else. It's just not leisure or so on and so forth. There's something, you know, uh, more, you know, we like to call it transformational or, or healing wise and so on and so forth. But by the end of the day, you know, these are the same dynamics of global tourism that play out. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. One, one thing is both of you, I believe have, have studied with Gabor Mate and, and done the compassionate inquiry process. And, and I, I'd be curious to hear what you all think, because I think that actually goes to a lot of the processes and the issues we're talking about. And, you know, for example, the the retreat center where we worked at, uh, that was something that was introduced. And, you know, again, all of these things, there is this duality, there is this pendulum. And, um, you know, th there are real tools out there that can help people. And, 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 and I think that's, that's certainly one of them. There, there's a real value to that. But then the question becomes, like, is that being imposed on top of another system um, is that even in alignment? Is that within a worldview of the system you're working with? Um, and then how does that also change it? Because then you're again in that kind of amputation, you're, you're taking, and this is kind of this psychologized models. Then you're emphasizing that, for example, in that case, everything can be, you know, uh, reduced down to childhood trauma. And that's not the Shipibo worldview. That's not to say no. it's not true, but it's certainly not the Shipibo worldview. Uh, so then, you know, as you were saying, Adam, then a lot of people's experiences, because that seed has been planted, then it all becomes about that. And, you right. know, one of the interesting things about plant medicine work that, that I think many people would agree on is there is this process of shedding. The, the, that's what's what is seen as, as the issue is that we've taken on all of these identities, all of these layers, and they become who right. we are. And in a sense, we're then mariado. We're, we're lost in the dizziness of life. We're, we're lost in the the illusion. All, all of these lenses that we're working through. And so, I think one of the issues when you introduce like something like that is then you're introducing another lens that then adds on another layer. Uh, instead of beginning to take these layers off. Um, and, and then there's another question, which is, is that imposition or that adding on of something, is it actually better than the original? And and I think that's a really vital question. And, and, and I don't yeah. know that the answer is yes. I think the answer could very well be no, that actually there are already systems built into that worldview that deal with those things, maybe not in the same way, but they are dealing with them and potentially even in a more holistic way. And so, you know, I, I think because it's interesting, even in many indigenous uh, prophecies and stories, 
um, they do have this idea that we are in a time of bridging worlds, of bridging medicines. Uh, and so I think it's, it's important that we don't, you know, also, as you were saying, that we don't hold on to systems as static, that there is a chance for change and growth and learning. But also that recognition that is this imposition of something from the outside, is that actually bettering the system or is it adding another layer on? And it also goes to that, you know, quality that we were talking about, which is something I really saw, which is the imposition of all of these different systems. There is something kind of egoic about that. It's like me needing to feel like I can add on and and making it my own or naming it or my system of this. <laughs> Whereas there there already is this entire tradition there that that perhaps doesn't need an addition of some outside system, that it has everything built in already. So I know that's kind of a long question, but but I'd be curious, you know, because both of you have studied with Gator and Gabor and, you know, he's done amazing work. He, he's an incredible human being. I, I think he, he deserves a lot of respect, but it's interesting that idea of like, is taking that, that thing from the outside in, is that actually bettering something or is it potentially creating more issues? Brian, maybe you can take this. I'm going to go pee quickly. <laughs> yeah. I don't have uh, a whole lot more time. Um, okay. So the question is, can you pose it to me again? Yeah, I mean, just using like, for example, that idea of, of Gabor Mate uh, and introducing kind of that that psychologized model into a more okay. traditional system, and and you know, what what are maybe some of the benefits of that, and then also what are potentially some of the drawbacks? Uh, okay, well, the first thing maybe to say is Gabor Mate is not a psychologist or a psychiatrist he's a retired family physician um, and so what he's put together as his therapeutic approach is really cobbled together from other sources um, you know I think Gabor has got a voracious appetite for knowledge and I think he's a really good synthesizer but what comes along with that and um, is actually kind of a prerequisite for his kind of popularity in our culture is uh, reductionism, oversimplification, uh, reducing things down to cause and effect. So the problems that I'm experiencing as an adult have their roots in childhood trauma. And so the solution that Galbar presents is that um, your work then is to dig up the roots of this trauma by locating the childhood experience. Uh, and that's the healing. And there's no focus on, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, it's it's a narrow view of psychology, and I feel like psychology is getting a bad rap in this conversation. What I'm trying to keep iterating is that there are, like there are different cosmologies, different sh shamanic traditions, there are different psychologies and different approaches to psychology. Some of them are much more expansive and closer to a kind of a spiritual outlook than others. And so... 
I think Gabor, because of his medical background, relies more on um, cognitive behavioral approaches to psychology, which are focused on the mind. So the effects of trauma on the neurology of the person, chemical imbalances and things like that. Again, for me, um, it's too reductive. Uh, and it's all, it's looking backwards, you know? So I do think it's a problem. And because of the cult of celebrity, people are ready to just accept whatever he says as truth. And that is also a problem. And he's participating in that. He's, uh, <laughs> he's all tied up in it. So I think any kind of uh, celebrity guru, uh, I think that's problematic in and of itself because all that it brings with it, the kind of influence they have, uh, the kind of um, blinding that happens when someone's in their presence of someone who's a celebrity. So like when Gabor demonstrates his compassionate inquiry on stage in front of a live audience and, um, you know, whoever's watching through a recording, it's already a very unnatural setting for that. Uh, the person is already seeing Gabor as a kind of savior or guru figure, a wise elder, you know, how, whatever they're projecting onto him. And he's there to receive it and kind of play that part. And so they're already primed to have a, a revelatory experience. In fact, there's actually pressure for them to have that experience because they're on stage in front of everyone with the guru that people have paid a lot of money to come and learn from. You had a good, you had a good so, term for that. Yeah, so what it leads to is what I've been calling a manufactured epiphany. So Gabor will get you on stage and uh, convince you that you have childhood trauma, whether you thought you had it or not. And within a few minutes, he'll do a quick uh, kind of formulaic inquiry process that will help you identify this early childhood experience that is no doubt the cause of the troubles that you're experiencing now. The person has this, uh, this experience of epiphany, like, oh my God, that's it, I've got it. And it's affirmed by the audience. Um, you know, there's applause for like not only the bravery of the person who's uh, uh, put themselves through this on stage, but also the the mastery of Gabor or whoever is kind of leading this experience. And, you know, it's not just him. It's also people like Byron Katie and um, people who come out of Landmark Forum and things like this. It's all Tony Robbins. The, it relies a lot on this moment of the manufactured epiphany. Uh, it makes true believers out of people. But what I found in my three years since becoming um, credentialed with Gabor is, you know, I've gotten a lot of people have come to me through him. They've seen the videos, they followed up, found out, oh my God, there's this therapeutic approach. And, oh, here's this guy who seems different than the Kundalini yoga teachers who are on that page. Um, he seems like I can relate to him. So they call me up and they're for the express purpose of tracking down that root cause of their trauma. So they already come with this limited backwards looking mindset. 
Uh, and I have to disillusion them of the idea that, you know, within a few minutes we can, we can track it down and we can uproot, uh, the source of the trauma, um, because that's what they've seen played out on stages, you know, and so that's the expectation they have. And that once they identify, okay, I'm going to be done with it and I'm not going to be triggered again and my life is going to be better. I'm going to be a more calm and compassionate person like I see modeled by the, you know, the person on stage selling the method. So, you know, again, I've written a lot about this. It's a big problem. Uh, so short answer is no, I don't think it's helpful <laughs> to bring this into the plant medicine space. It's, just, it's too narrow and reductive. And psychedelics, to me, have the potential to open and expand, like to do that, that uh, outgrowing of our problems, like to quote back to Jung. For me, that's really been, you know, that's what I learned through my own healing process. It was about um, deepening my capacity to tolerate all of those things I mentioned before, the ambivalence, the ambiguity, the not knowing, the anxieties of life, of existential uncertainty, all of that. Being able to tolerate that because I've expanded my my worldview, my view of myself and my relationship to the world. Um, yeah. So that's much different than focusing in on one particular event that happened in your life that has like led to all of these troubles, whether it's, you know, depression, anxiety, addiction, the, the physical illness, all of these things he's attributing to have their root cause in childhood trauma. And look, if it's not just your childhood trauma, then it's your mother's trauma or it's your grandparents' trauma. And we get into this idea of ancestral trauma. And that gets really close to uh, kind of, you know, new age reincarnation and past life ideas, you know? And so his, um, his kind of metaphysics are really fuzzy. You know, one of my uh, mentors, Stephen Jenkinson calls it the disorganized religion of the non-aligned. I like that. The disorganized I... religion of the non-aligned. <laughs> the religion that is not a religion is another good term for it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have yeah, any thoughts anyway. on that, Adam? That, that, that was great, Brian. Thank you. It's a, uh, it's, it's a, uh, it, the chicken and the egg. It's difficult to, to pinpoint what led to what, but I think, you know, what's happening nowadays is that, uh, there is a, we're in a cultural momentum where the trauma narrative has become so entrenched in psychedelic work that it's almost inseparable. Hence Brian's very good term, traumadelic culture which I think very much encapsulates exactly this phenomenon. And I think, you know, again, like our matter was definitely, has been a driving motor beyond that. Again, like the chicken and the egg, but, um, you know, it's hit and miss. And I think for every hit, there's a few misses that are problematic in different ways. I think, you know, the, the, first, the first problem with misses is exactly what Brian said, right? Like those manufactured epiphanies. And what happens when, you know, the narrative that we're being sold about what psychedelics are for and what ayahuasca work is for is based on childhood trauma. And then that becomes kind of like our focus and we orient every experience that we have towards that. And then, you know, there's, there's a few things that can happen. You know, the first thing is like, we can actually uncover some important real thing that happened to us that can, 
you know, provide like a real momentum of epiphany for healing and so on and so forth. But I think those, I, I don't think those are the norms. I think those are actually the few instances where actually there's something there that is real. I think for the most part, there's other, there's two things that happen. Either one, right? Like this is something that I've dealt with a lot facilitating is uh, a person will go to ceremony and have this incredible experience of unity and bliss and you know, exploration of realms of sentience or whatever the fuck, you know, that experience is for like, and then, you know, they're, you know, kind of processing that incredible uncanny thing that happened, but then the next morning they're disappointed, right? And they're like, well, I mean, you just shared, you know, this incredible journey that you had into this kind of, you know, realms of awe and mystery and something that yeah, but I didn't, I didn't tap into my trauma, right? Like I didn't, like I didn't, I didn't get what I wanted because I wanted to uncover the deeper roots of my trauma. That's what I was told that I should be doing. And I didn't do that. So I'm disappointed, even though I had probably what was one of the most significant experiences in my life, I'm still disappointed. And then I will go through five ceremonies or six ceremonies and the whole workshop, I'm not going to get what I wanted because what I came here for is to uncover the deeper root of my trauma, because I was told that that's the only that's the only source of all my adult dysfunction and then i'm gonna go home feeling disappointed and not getting what i came here hey you know, this, this is a situation that is absurd and it's ridiculous but sadly it's not uncommon and i think the second thing that can happen you know when we do have so much stress for this for experiencing these manufactured epiphanies is that you know, I mean, this may be a question because I imagine both of you have gone through similar experiences, but many, many, many times, right? Like after ceremony, you know, like this person had a vision or something and, you know, it kind of like tapped into a very fuzzy memory. There were some sensations. There's an idea that perhaps there was some molestation in their childhood and there's like a vague idea of who that person might have been but it's not very straightforward, right? Like there's kind of like this vagueness about it. And then this is, again, like this is where, where facilitation skills and breadth of scope can come very useful, right? Because somebody who is extremely invested in the trauma story, right, is going to poke into the story and try to bring lucidity to the details to make it like an actual real memory of something that actually happened, right? It's like, well, does that person have a face? Is that there's a particular sensation mm -hmm. in your body? Blah, 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 and then turns out, oh, I was, I was molested by my uncle when I was three, right? And then, you know, that might be true and that might not be true. There's no real way of knowing. There's a huge, massive uh, controversy ranging decades in mainstream psychology about, you know, what is called the memory wars, about the validity of this concept of recovered memories and whether techniques that are meant to tap into suppress or repress memories are even valid. Massive controversy, not very straightforward at all, not very straightforward at all, probably. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. For, for the most part, probably it is a sort of confabulation. You know, a different facilitator, somebody who isn't as invested in trauma-informed you know, trauma something, that isn't as invested and say, oh, you see, there's a trauma. I told you so. I told you you were going to tap into a... Somebody who doesn't have that story probably is going to be a little bit more uh, balanced and a little bit more skeptical about not necessarily validating that story as real and maybe finding alternative interpretation. Maybe there's some symbolic aspect of it. Maybe there's something else, or maybe, you know, let's consider that as if it was a dream, or, you know, what would you make a, you know, 
not necessarily sending that person home with a you know fuzzy recollection of being traumatized sexually abused by their father or their uncle and then not knowing what to do when they go back home do i confront my father do i confront my uncle this is going to have implications not only for me for my whole family maybe i'm going to ruin somebody's life because i have this sort of vague idea that something happened to me because i was told by my facilitators that i must find my childhood trauma within the you know, I mean, it's it's a shit show. It can become a shit show. That requires a lot, a lot, a lot of skill to be able to, like, maybe, maybe hold on. Maybe let's think about it a little bit more. Let's feel into that. Let's tap into these things. So, you know, between those three things, I think is like the real one, the manufactured one, the false one, but of course the disappointment of like not getting what I wanted because that's what I was told that I should be doing when drinking ayahuasca, even though there's this other whole realm of things that could happen. Brian, yeah. you were going to say something. Well, I was just noticing the similarity between this uh, scenario you're laying out, you know, people going home with this new memory of trauma and the story you told before about the people going home with this idea of spirit possession. Right. Uh, to me, there's no difference. Um, <laughs> I see that. Yeah. Well, again, this comes back to the ability to tolerate uh, ambiguity, not knowing. I mean, I have fuzzy memories from my own childhood. Um, if you're, it's like that old adage, like it, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If yeah, you're Abraham Maslow. If you're trauma-informed, if you're formed by the trauma narrative, informed formed within the trauma narrative, like a mold, yes. then everything is going to look like a potential traumatic experience. Exactly. And so you're already kind of, from my perspective, off on the wrong foot. Um, so <laughs> yet again, I mean, it's like what we take into the experience forms so much of the experience. So coming back, you know, we're using this term healing a lot. Well, I don't have to point out to anyone here that the roots of the word healing are related to the word whole. So really in its original meaning to heal is to make whole. Right. Right. And so if we think about wholeness, uh, if that's our goal with the quote unquote work, well, why aren't we going back into why aren't we going into psychedelic ceremonies trying to recover the positive and life affirming memories from childhood that have been covered over by this trauma narrative um it's like we're trying to shovel shit on top of it all and only look at the shit well we're missing a lot of the gold which would be part of recovering our wholeness, wouldn't it? I mean, we've got to take the good and the bad, right? And I'd say that there's much more value in the good for you now, where you find yourself in your life right now, recovering some of that. Because I would say that a lot of the people I work with, the reason why they're suffering so much as adults is because they've lost a lot of that good stuff from their childhood. And it's not necessarily the fault of a of trauma, uh, of society or anything else. Part of it is just the way that we grow up here. Um, and so 
I imagine, you know, that that could be incorporated into psychedelic therapy. It's like this session is going to be focused on trying to recover, you know, something good, something that was lost. And this goes back to the the shamanic idea of um, our suffering is caused by soul loss. Mm -hmm. exactly. Not necessarily a wound, but because we've lost something that's integral to our wholeness. And so, you know, in a certain paradigm, it's the shaman's job to go retrieve that for you. And that could be like your sense of joy, wonder, curiosity about the world, your creativity, your vibrancy, your idiosyncrasy, you know, your weirdness. A lot of people lose that in their um, attempt to conform to a really homogenized, dull society where uh, anyone who shows uh, eccentricity is like an outsider, uh, is... Um, is, uh, you know, messed up in some way. <laughs> uh, and so I have a much broader view of what healing looks like. Um, and it doesn't mean being uh, conforming to the culture. Actually, I think healing would actually uh, put you at odds with the dominant culture for most of us, you know, to, yeah. to, um, take on this project of what Jung called individuation, like becoming who you're really meant to be. And that doesn't mean that you're good or perfect uh, or nice or any of these um, ideas that are upheld in healing culture. It might mean that you're a bit of a, a cranky weirdo. And I want more cranky weirdos in the world, actually, you know? I, I think of it, you know, I live in a very... Um, densely wooded place. And there's so many varieties of trees here. It's, it's amazing. <clears throat> when I go back east to where I come from, uh, a lot of the forests have been replanted. And so you'll come up across these wooded areas where there's rows of birch or maple trees, and they're all uh, perfectly spaced. They're all straight and aligned and everything. And I look at that as really the fundamental difference between what I try to help people with in the therapy I do and what conventional therapy is trying to help people become. I think conventional therapy is often um, geared toward that adaptation and conformity with the dominant culture, you know, a culture of straight, uh, evenly spaced, separate birch trees. Uh, whereas in the wild, I mean, it's so eclectic. Uh, there's so much kind of beautiful deformity. You know, we don't look at a, a perfectly straight birch tree and say, wow, what an amazing tree. No, it looks a lot like all those other ones. But we come across like an old oak tree that's grown around an old fence post and is like subsumed a bicycle into its trunk along the way. Like it tells this incredible story that isn't straight, that isn't... Uh, uniform uh it's incredibly unique to that particular tree and that's the kind of culture that i want to live in is one with that kind of diversity um not a bunch of uh calm centered uh you know non-reactive people and all this kind of thing <laughs> so i truly want people to uh become themselves and to become themselves as adults that can tolerate difference and respect differences and distances between. 
um, I think that's just a more healthy way of relating that we're not imposing our ideals or expectations on other people, other cultures, the natural environment, etc. To me, that's the key to living in harmony is um, becoming who you are, loving it and taking up the responsibility of contributing something to this world. Beautiful. <clears throat> I know uh, both of you probably have to get going pretty soon, but um, I, I was reminded of a, of a Native American uh, prayer that I work with. And, and one of the lines in there, it, it says, um, build upon the past, <clears throat> its lessons and its joys. Be strengthened by the love within. Reach out in love to those around us, for each day is a gift given but once. And, you know, I was reminded of that because of what you were saying with this idea of in that prayer, they're not looking back at the trauma. They're not like trying to find the root of something. There's actually this real sense of gratitude of looking upon the past and building upon its lessons and its joys yeah, by exactly. being they, strengthened they by the love. That's right. They characterize it as lessons, yeah. not as traumatic events, but as things that uh, we've learned from that have helped to shape our character in its own particular way, like these knurled oak trees or wobbly cedars. Yeah. Could you give it to us again, just a little bit slower? I think it's a good place to end. <laughs> um, <clears throat> build upon the past, its lessons and its joys. Be strengthened by the love within. Reach out in love to those around us, for each day is a gift given but once. And um, alternate worldview, <laughs> kind of, kind of moving to to to, to a, a bigger picture at large. Uh, there, there's one other question that that I'd I'd be curious about your your worldview because. <clears throat> It does seem like these ideas are moving out to the mainstream. And, and, you know, something you were mentioning was this idea of like new age reincarnation, past lives. And, and a lot seems that, you know, I think Adam, you were mentioning about this somewhere, you know, this idea of identity politics and that we're, we're really idealizing this, this sense of, of victimhood of I am my trauma. I am my, my race. I am my political view. And, and, you know, as you were saying, Brian, like we seem to be moving away from this idea of respecting difference, of saying like, this is me and, and I'm different and that's okay. Rather than this kind of one world view of, of, you know, hierarchy and there's only one way to think. And, um, you know, it seems, uh, I think in the interview we were in Adam, you, you said it very well, which is we, we seem to be, be losing these ideas of nuance. And, you know, kind of how we started this podcast was this idea. And, and, you know, you, you kind of gave a caveat in the beginning, Brian, which is that the trauma is real, you know, and you were saying it, Adam, with this idea of this kind of like pendulum or, or duality. And it's all of these things have a reality. Like there's a reality to trauma. There, there's a reality to the past. There's, there's a beauty to Western psychology. There's a beauty to indigenous uh, wisdom. But it seems like all of these things, if we take them to the extreme, we begin to lose the center. We begin to lose the wholeness, the healing. We become more crystallized in our views. And, and that innately creates separation because there's, there's me, my view, and then the other. Um, so I guess I'd, I'd be curious how, how you see this moving out into the culture at large and, and maybe ending on a good note, what you see uh, as potential positivities of, of how we can maybe remedy uh, some of these issues we've been talking about. 
Big question. Okay. I think, well, how is it moving out into the, how are these ideas moving out into the culture at large? Uh, I think what's happening first is people are coming to the end of the road with uh, these particular approaches, whether it's conventional psychotherapy or this um, kind of, I don't know, westernized way to work with the plant medicines and psychedelics. I think people are just coming to the end of the road. Uh, they're figuring out that um, there was no profound change actually. And so what might be required for that? And so then they'll start seeking for an alternative. And those are the people who find me generally, are people who've gone down the road of conventional therapy or have gone to some healing ceremonies and um, the fundamental issues in their life haven't been magically solved. And so then it's time to do the deeper adult work. And that's where I want to meet people, you know. Um, I don't want to meet people just starting out on their journey, actually, because I think sometimes we have to go through uh, some of this stuff, you know, what's being offered out in the spiritual marketplace or the healing marketplace. We have to go through for ourselves and sample it and um, find out you know, what works and what doesn't work. All too often, um, things don't have a lasting effect. Because ultimately, I think what's required is um, you taking up the responsibility for your own health and well-being in a way. And recognizing that as long as you're isolated from community and culture and place, you're never going to be, um, you're never going to reach the level of happiness and life satisfaction that you fantasize about um so you've got to get out into the world too and uh yeah so i don't know i don't know if the ideas will ever reach the mainstream i think sometimes ideas have to go underground in order to be preserved uh in order to be protected from corruption uh by the dominant culture so i'm kind of happy to just go underground and uh, let people come digging for me you know, and these ideas, which are, by the way, all about depth. Beautiful. I think, you know, I like, I like the, the way that you framed it as doing the adult work. You know, like I oftentimes characterize the current state of healing culture as a whole as being in the adolescent phase. Like we're a very, we're in a juvenile state of the development of what healing culture can be like, right? Like, and we have, you know, again, like this, this uh, polarity in left and right, to put it in some ways, but on the right side of the spectrum, for example, we have like this idea that each person is, you know, absolutely responsible for our own well-being and we need to pull ourselves like the bootstraps and we like, it's only our responsibility to do the healing and our own transformation and so on and so forth. And then on the other side of that, we have kind of like the idea that, you know, we're all, kind of like passive outcomes or products of systems of oppression and all that structural violence around us that inevitably leads to us being what they are. And we don't really have much agency in getting better because we're always under the crushing weight of forces outside of ourselves. And I think like both of those positions to some extent are precisely that they're juvenile, right? Like on the one hand, like an, um, over, like an over, um, Right, like like we're kind of like we're we're not assessing properly the actual 
reality of our own agency in both situations like we can we don't we, we can't be fully self-reliant and independent ever but at the same time we do have a degree of agency um you know and develop resilience and so on that we don't have yeah. to be victims to the circumstances all the time and i think like a big a big shift probably is the integration of those both sides into a much more mature apprehension of like yes individual health is always absolutely in dialogue with the health of the community and the health of the society, the health of the culture that envelops the individual, the health of the environment that sustain us. But at the same time, as individuals, we do have a huge degree of agency and intentionality. And we can take care of certain things within our you know, individual spheres, but also the more that we heal and the more that we grow and the more that we are able to become fully functional adults outside of that juvenile state or that neoteny, extended neoteny state, then we can also have a more important impact on the structures, you know, that are creating kind of like those things. So I think like an integration of those things, like a realization of our own agency as individuals, but at the same time, the impact of these things. And this is the thing that I oftentimes always go back to when I talk about these things, because this is the one thing that I often, you know, I think is the crucial, most important aspect from the Amazonian ontologies and the medical systems that emerge from these ontologies. Uh, you know, the Shipibo medical system, the way of working, the understanding of disease, the understanding of healing, the, you know, the, this idea that everything always is in relationship to. Yeah, everything is relational and the healing is also relational and understanding these things is relational. That we can simultaneously, you know, if we really want to understand ourselves in our real place within this network of interdependent relationships, right? Like we need to come to terms precisely with all of these different things, our own personal story, right? Like our own, tra our own trauma, our biographical things, the, you know, why we are the way that we are as, you know, processing all the kind of like psychodynamic thing and, you know, kind of like really getting to know ourselves like this, you know, the Oracle at Delphi, right? Like know yourself, gnosis, out on whatever, kind of like this idea of self-knowledge as kind of like the primary orientation, but at the same time, right? Like expanding that perhaps, inspired by these relational ontologies of the Amazonian cultures, like expanding that, who am I? Not to encapsulate only this notion of the individual that is very proper of kind of like Western educated, rational, democratic societies of me as an individual separate from the world, but me, right, as a locus of consciousness that is still always in relationship with its all other forms of sentience, my environment, the ecology, the culture that I'm from. And, that, you know, by the end of the day, it's kind of like this idea that nobody can be really fully happy and healthy unless everybody else is also happy and healthy. That is always a dialogue, right? That it isn't necessarily a process of healing that entails the sort of self-absorption and self-obsession and navel-gazing that we oftentimes see in these kinds of environments. But if we're really serious about healing, right, we need to at some point kind of like yank ourselves out of that state of self-absorption, right, and say like, hey, you know, maybe my healing is not only about me. It's not only about my story. It's not only about my trauma. It's about like coming to terms with what happened to me exactly in the way that you guys we're expressing it but as lessons, right? As not necessarily letting letting it become my identity in a way that creates kind of like this victim, you know, this victimization, but like, okay, I can move past my, you know, my, I can move past my circumstances. I can move past my history. I can put, move past these things, learn what I need to learn. And then also 
start, you know, perhaps keeping one one eye inwards all the time, kind of like the self-knowledge, introspection, self-healing, so on and so forth, but also one eye outwards, right? Like, where is it in my immediate environment that I can do things better for everybody else? Where is it in my immediate community that I can work in order to strengthen these relationships, this reciprocity, this mutual aid, the mutual responsibility that by the end of the day, right, we're looking both at the individual as individuals, but also as individuals as nodes, as interconnected networks to say like, yes, right, like there is always going to be an intrinsic link that we need to take a lot of, we need to, take, to pay a lot of attention to both inwards but also individual community individual culture individual environment and so on and so forth and this is something that i always found very inspiring in the amazonian medical systems because everything about them is inherently relational you can't speak about healing growth any of those things if you're not talking about always minding the relationships yeah uh what are you drinking man i want whatever you're on it's got some pep in it <laughs> I have I have three different things: That's water that is over, um, green juice that is spinach and orange, and then I have a small cup of that one. Uh, Oaxacan mezcal ah. that I that I always I always drink when I'm doing interviews to take the edge off because I get very nervous. Uh, I'd love some of I'm, that. I'm by not. The way. A, if only we could like I'm a, have technology. I'm a naturally shy. I'm a naturally shy, um, how do you say? Introvert. Uh, introvert, yes. I don't believe so, it. Okay. It's true. Just a couple, <laughs> <laughs> just a couple of things. Um, okay, so I think what you're talking about there, the like we've been talking about these polarities throughout the whole conversation, right? Um, right. And the polarities that you, that you uh, brought out there was... Uh, you know, I'm totally responsible for my healing or like I'm a helpless victim of my circumstance. Right. Right. So let me just point out from the archetypal uh, point of view that these are one is a, a child archetype, the helpless victim, and one is an adolescent archetype, the, the hero. The hero's journey, the heroic archetype is meant to carry us to the threshold of adulthood. The hero dies at the point of real initiation and the true adult is born. And so, you know, I've been advocating all along for better stories, basically. Yes. You know, like the, the kind of traumadelic story is too narrow and limiting and um, turns adults into uh, disempowered, depoliticized individuals, which isn't good yes. for them and isn't good for the culture that is part of what's making us sick in the first place. Okay, so I think we need to recover stories of what it means to be an adult in right relation with the responsibilities and obligations of a true adult. So that's one of the things that I've been focusing on lately is uh, digging out some of these stories from the Western tradition that are there to help us to become true adults. That's the function of the myths and stories, is they're supposed to teach us how to be in right, right relationship. You know, the stories of any particular culture are a set of original instructions for how to be a good human being in that particular place and culture. Okay, so I think we need to recover some of those stories from our own uh, European Western tradition and to amplify those like how many 
myths and stories can you think of where there's a, a an adult man who is like admirable and trustworthy? Uh, we're constantly fed this image of adult men as incompetent, bumbling idiots, you know? Um, and so where does that leave us, right? Well, it leaves us kind of bumbling idiots. And then we bumble into other people's cultures and we take what we want and we, you know, all all the problems that we've been circling around this whole time. So that's, a, I think, where I'd like to end it is uh, digging up some of those, those uh, stories that are meant to teach us how to be true adults and elders in training. Um, yeah. And just as a teaser, I've done a podcast with someone on this. He wrote a book in the 90s called Beyond the Hero. And he was interested in this exact question. And I, I found his work because I was digging into this question myself, like, where are the stories that teach us how to be real adults? What does it mean to be a, a real adult and all of that? So I found his book and he did a survey of thousands of stories from the Western tradition, fairy tales and myths. And he started to locate that there are these stories that were told amongst, you know, adults, um, you know, getting men getting drunk together and telling these stories over and over. Uh, and he located that the kind of central archetype to these stories, which made me really happy, is the trickster. Because um, I love I'm a trickster myself. Yeah, I love a trickster. I, I have a lot of trickster, and I love the trickster. But the trickster is all about um, uh, tripping us up. About uh, you know these qualities I talked about before, like the ambiguity, the uncertainty. Um, the trickster is never static, never dogmatic, never certain, um, never polemic. You know, um, which is often the role of the shaman in a lot of traditional societies. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why they keep the shaman on the edge of town, because if he lived in town, he'd just cause too much trouble, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mischief. So he's outside the dominant culture, and that's his function, is to be there to um, to disrupt things when things need renewing, right? Yes. And I think our culture is in a real need for renewal. I think Donald Trump was... Um, a manifesting of the trickster archetype, but in a really unhealthy way, because our culture has forgotten how to deal with the trickster or what the trickster's real function is. So he gets demonized, and of course he gets inflated and turns into like the worst kind of trickster, the one that's only um, interested in destruction, not in renewal. Uh, so I think we need more stories of the trickster in our um, Western culture. And I need I think we need to understand and respect the role of the trickster. Like the trickster in our Western cultures was uh, was prevalent throughout until uh, the Catholic Church came along. Christianity has no trickster in it, has only the adversary. And so we've got that duality there, you know, the savior and the adversary. And so look at Joe Biden, the savior, Donald Trump, the adversary. It's very limited. It's very black and white. We need uh, more of a kind of psychological polytheism. We need uh, more of the archetypes in the mix of this new story that uh, I think the world is calling us to uncover. Wonderful. <clears throat> Any Anything else either of you want to add on that I'm, we didn't uh, touch done. on? I'm done. <laughs>
I agree. I agree with Brian, and something something that I oftentimes also propose is that healing culture in general needs better stories. I think this is something that is very important. And you know, psychedelics in general, like this, the orientation towards what psychedelics can be like, like the whole thing needs needs better stories. This is definitely true. Amen. And that's something yeah. that you know that's so important in in cultures all over the world is the story. Um, you yeah, Amika, who I, I think you've worked with Adam. Um, you know, a big part of the, he comes from a group of people called the Tubu, and he he would actually say, Amika is his title, he, and it, part of that is the storyteller. And that they they would actually say there's like these these códigos de sanación, there's these healing codes, which are actually embedded in the story. And so there, there's, it, it, it's even beyond the idea of there's just, there's myth, there's legend, there there's you know, teaching people how to be, what is good, what's not good, what to do, what to avoid, how to be a man, how to be a woman, what is your role. But he would actually say there's healing codes built into these mm -hmm. stories that actually go in and affect you. And it, it may sound kind of crazy, but having experienced it, you know, only, I, I can only, only describe it as... Only crazy for people who are unstoried. Yeah. Right. Think about the word restoration. Restoring. Yes, of course, these these old stories have healing codes in them. You know, this is what, you know, I was talking about with the original instructions, you know, but healing codes is a beautiful way to put it. And to be enchanted means to be chanted too. Right. And so the stories need to be told and they need to be told to maintain the health of the culture. I mean, this is this is right down to the essence. I think of what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, thanks for like affirming that from that guy's perspective. Absolutely true. And we see parallels in uh, in the place where I live with the indigenous people. The stories are the foundation of the culture. They help to maintain and preserve it by constantly renewing it. So the stories are always changing mm -hmm. for what's needed. You know, it's not about preservation, like putting something in amber to preserve it so it never changes. It's more about maintenance and ongoing maintenance, which means being aware and alert to what's changing in the environment, in the world around us, and, you know, allowing the stories to morph and change along with that so they stay refreshed and relevant. So I'm not advocating that we go back and dig up, you know, Greek myths and we try to live by the Greek myths or even the Christian stories or the old pagan stories. But those stories have to be retold and they have to be kept alive in a way so that they can grow and change so that they can meet us uh, in our particular predicament now. And that's that's a complicated. That's not a program. That's not a step-by-step -step how to. That's not a weekend workshop. This is a lifestyle. One of the interesting things that, that that also you're pointing towards is 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 he would say that that we're we're orphans of time and space, and that be, mm -hmm. because we have forgotten who we are and where we come from, and that interestingly, plant medicines are are one of the ways to help us remember that, to help us remember those stories of of who we are and where we come from. Yeah, I yeah I call it. I just started a Substack last week. Um, and I've been calling it uh, Sunday School for Spiritual Orphans. Mm -hmm. So trying to draw out some of these stories from the Western tradition that I think can uh, can can feed us. Uh, 
you know, what we're so hungry for from our own tradition so that we're not going and stealing off other people's uh, tables, you know. Sounds great. And finding out that that their food doesn't agree with us anyway. Oh, stomach cramps. Jeez, (laughs) why? This is good for them. Why isn't it good for me too? Well, maybe it has something to do with where you come from and where your roots are. Well, thank you both very much. Um, if people are interested in in learning more about you or getting in touch with you, what are uh, what are or are there ways that they can do that? Nope, <laughs> you got to come find me, <laughs> dig me up out of the backyard. You gotta you gotta go venture into the deep forest and ask the fairies <laughs> where may I find where may I find the wizard? Um, healing from healing on Instagram, I think is the easiest. Yeah, and uh, I've got the Medicine Path podcast, which you can check out. Um, my private practice is at medicinepath.me. And like I said, I just started this new Substack, theveil.substack.com. Great. Right? Great. Well, thank you both very Beautiful. much. Uh, this was a pleasure, and uh, it, it lived up to my, my hopes and expectations. And uh, I mean, you know, these are huge subjects, and I think we could probably talk for hours about them. So maybe at some point in the future, we, uh, we meet back up and, and, and do round two. Yeah, and see how yeah. our ideas have changed even, right? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think it was a great um, first summit of the Three Amigos, the North American Free Trade of Ideas <laughs> Project. Uh, so the NAFTA thanks project. A lot, thanks a lot for making this happen, Jason. I really enjoyed just exchanging ideas with you guys. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, well, likewise. likewise. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, everyone, that's it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Adam and Brian. Uh, it was really a pleasure for me to sit down, reconnect with them, um, and, and have them share in their views on, on what I think are uh, really important topics. Um, you know, the, the world of plant medicine uh, is vast. The, 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 the knowledge that's there and accessible, the traditions, uh, the different ways these plants have been used um, are, are truly extraordinary. And, and so I think to, to kind of box them into any uh, one box or one hole or, or one cosmovision, just one way of looking at them, um, I think not only cuts them off from their source, but uh, is actually quite harmful in a way uh, because it's 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 removing a lot of the um, the parts of a, of a, of a much bigger picture. And as, as Brian said, uh, you know, even the root of healing is wholeness. And, and if we begin to extract these things without looking them in their holistic context, uh, we lose a tremendous amount. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Um, as always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really good option. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, uh, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. To all the people who have done that, uh, thank you very much for your support. As always, I deeply appreciate it. Um, one of the things I, I really like about that site and others like it is it works on this idea of reciprocity. So if you feel like you're gaining something, gaining knowledge, insight uh, from this podcast, uh, that's a beautiful way to give back. Um, If you're not able to support that way, as always, helping with the algorithms is uh, super beneficial. So if you're viewing this on YouTube, hitting the um, subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, leaving any questions or comments in the comment section. Uh, There's also video versions now on Spotify and Rumble. 
And then if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, uh, subscribing or following the show, and also leaving a starred rating and a short review is also a really big help with the algorithms and getting the show out to a bigger audience. So that's it. Um, my next conversation is going to be with Joe Moore from Psychedelics Today. Uh, I was on his podcast a while back, so he's going to be coming on this one. Um, I also may have a conversation with a local Cardo guy. Um, hopefully he'll come on. And also uh, another local guy who does a lot of work with esoteric philosophies and mystery schools. His name is Andrew. Uh, hopefully he'll be coming on. I'm shooting quite a few of these before I go on a bit of a, a, a world tour of, of working with plants and dieting. Um, I'll be in Portugal, Ireland, uh, probably by the time this comes out, uh, those will already be over. Um, but then after that, I'll be in Colorado and New York. And then um back to the Sacred Valley of Peru in November, where we're also running a retreat. So also, if you'd like any information on that, you can check out my website at nicotianarustica.org, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So that's it, everyone. Uh, I hope this finds you all well. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you all for the support, and I will see you all on the next episode. Thank mm-hmm. you.